Hey, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. This is episode 83. It's with Jackie Barnes. Here we go. today is Australian drumming powerhouse Jackie Barnes. Born into Australian music royalty as the son of legendary rock singer Jimmy Barnes, it seems Jackie was always destined to be part of the music industry. He discovered drums at age five through watching the great Tony Brock play drums in his father's band. After finishing high school studies in Sydney, Jackie began working in the local music scene, eventually auditioned successfully for the Jimmy Barnes band in 2005 and immediately began touring locally and globally. After a few years in the band, he felt the necessity to branch out and expand his musical knowledge, so he applied, auditioned, and began a Bachelor of Music at the esteemed Berklee College of Music in Boston. Jackie toured the world with the Australian group The Ten Tenors, recorded drums, percussion, and vocals on the album Revolution with rock supergroup The Dead Daisies, and Jackie is also a longtime member of the Lockie Dolly group, which has seen him tour constantly for the past five years. As well as still touring the world in his father's band, Jackie has had the chance to work with such greats as Keith Urban, Journey, Joe Bonamassa, Diesel, Ian Moss, Rose Tattoo, Bob Daisley, Steve Morse and Glenn Hughes, to name a few. With such great experience at age 34, it seems Jackie has a long, illustrious career ahead of him. Jackie's a great dude, worldly, humble and takes nothing for granted. So, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Jackie Barnes. All right, I think we're rolling. Jackie Barnes, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Thanks for having me, mate. Sweet, it's man. good to be here. What's going on? You're up in um, Queensland? Yeah, yeah, so I'm up in the Sunshine Coast uh, on Yorumba Beach, just kind of Locked down. Locked down. So what's the um what's the lockdown level up there? Um, they've kind of eased it a little bit in the last couple of weeks. I mean, um, we're lucky here to be in quite an isolated part of the country. Mm. Um and um there haven't really been that many uh new cases of late. So I think it's, you know, reasonably safe up here. Obviously we're taking a lot of precautions and um still, you know. Um, staying home as much as we can apart from groceries and things like that. But, you know, we're allowed to go to the beach, we're allowed to play golf, we're allowed to, you know, do kind of little things like that. I think mm. you're allowed one one or two people over, but we haven't really been doing that anyway. So That's cool. Yeah. It's, and yeah, I, 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 think, a, I think that's um, changing to five people, I think. Well, it is yeah. here in New South Wales. They're changing restrictions to level three, I think, I think it is. Oh, it's yeah, hard it's to keep up. Crazy with it all, times. Man, but yeah, we're we're a bit like you. We're just staying home, man. Like our our kids are still home from school. Mm-hmm. Um, we had them home home a couple of weeks before. Yeah, you know they said you could keep them home, but we did anyway. Um, yep. um I just head out for work and come back, and my wife, <clears throat> she's working from home and looking after the kids and homeschooling, and yep. yeah, just <laughs> it is what it is, eh? Absolutely. Yeah. So, what were you doing? Um, 
music wise sort of leading up to that and and um what's the impact of this been on your um on your gigs and and stuff you had coming up yeah well um obviously i kind of finished up the bulk of my touring um in december uh and i kind of you know, purposely took a month or two off just to kind of take a break anyway. Um, so I'd been, you know, the last 10 years really, I've been touring pretty constantly. Yeah. Um, and I've been, I've spent a lot of time overseas, a lot of time away from my family. So I kind of took stock in December at the end of, um, we just finished a tour with, uh, with dad, mm. um, which um, was a really successful tour. It was a really big tour um, and a big undertaking. So once that was finished, you know, I'd, I'd kind of, been playing so many shows that I kind of felt a little bit like I needed to be at home for a while and needed to rest. Uh, and then, you know, obviously Cold Chisel went on tour and I kind of was involved in that, not in a musical standpoint, but I was there, you know, as a bit of a kind of tour manager and kind of helping oh, cool. out dad on the road, just his kind of man on, man on the ground. Oh, great. Um, great. And that was nice to kind of just not have to worry about the performing, but, you know, still be doing something to do with music. Um, and then I was home, you know, so I've been pretty much home since December. I had some shows with the Lockie Dolly group, uh, which in actual fact was the last show I played, which was I think March 9, mm. down nine or 10, somewhere around there in, um, in, in Bangalore. And, uh, that was the last show I've played and I've been home since. Yeah. So it's been pretty quiet. It's been pretty weird. Um, mm. you know, for a man that's accustomed to being on the road constantly it's quite a an adjustment to just you know have all the gigs dry up like i had a lot booked over the next year really year and a half right. um and right. at the moment everything's pretty much either on hold or it's being cancelled so right um yeah it's just a it's a it's a strange time but you know i'm i'm just enjoying spending time with my wife and kids and just enjoying being at home mm. yeah. and and you got a bit of a studio there um so you're still able to play and keep your chops up and um, – Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't really call it a studio. I mean, I've got a, a, a dedicated space like slash room in my house. Just like me. That we just, just moved like, yeah. into. <laughs> I've got my yeah, drums over and, there and my guitars and all my other stuff. <laughs> it's just my, just my room. Yeah. It's my space. The, man, the man cave. The man cave, really. man. Yeah, bro. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's one of those things like I have always been pretty um, – useless when it comes to you know music production engineering and stuff like that i dedicated so much of my career and my time to performing that i kind of that that's my you know that's my kind of main skill uh and i kind of always found the recording process in terms of you know doing it like myself i found it really tedious and hard to kind of get used to and it just was something that I knew I needed to dedicate a lot of time to, um, mm. to be able to do it right. Um, but I never really found that time to do it. So that's what I've really been doing since I've been in lockdown is I've kind of built up this little home studio. I've kind of learned how to work logic, Pro Tools, mm. um, using interfaces, you know, plugins, all that sort of stuff. And I've just been really kind of, yeah, hunkering down and, and learning a new skill, so to speak. And I've actually just picked up the bass as well to kind of, I saw a photo of that. Nate Wood, look out. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's um roll right back to the early days. Um, mm -hmm. For people that don't know, Jackie's dad is the great Jimmy Barnes. So what I usually ask um, my guests is, was there music in the family? So that's probably a bit <laughs> of a stupid question, that one. <laughs> um, um, well, I mean, yeah, there was definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, let's – 
let's start at when music became apparent for you. Um, obviously, growing mm-hmm. up from day one, I guess music would have been there. Was was there um, a moment, an age where you saw somebody playing? I'm sure you would have gone to to shows and seen your dad play, and um, mm-hmm. you know maybe realised oh, I think I want to do something like that. Pick up an instrument yeah, well, and. and it really started straight away for me. Um, I mean, I, when I was born, Dad was overseas um, in the US with uh, he was touring, opening up for ZZ Top, mm. um, and my mum was with me in Australia. When she got out of the hospital, I was about two weeks old. She flew me over to Chicago to meet him for the first time, and so you know, I've really been on tour from birth. Yeah, and um, and you know, music has dominated my life. Really, it's like my earliest memories are of dad performing and seeing live music. So um, that's where the the passion for performance comes from. My earliest memories are you know standing side of stage at his shows. You know, who knows where in the world, but you know, I was always there. I had like the kind of shooter's headphones on side of stage falling asleep in road cases and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. um, and I would always watch, I, I do remember watching dad and thinking that's really cool, but I would always be, my eyes would always be drawn to Tony Brock, who was the drummer. Um, and that just looked fun. It, it looked like the most fun. Yeah. And, you know, so my earliest memories are sitting on Tony Brock's lap in sound checks and, you know, hitting around the drums with my hands. My feet wouldn't reach the pedals, so I remember him playing the feet. Uh, and that was really my introduction to music, watching and, you know, learning off Tony and then, you know, seeing dad's, you know, prowess on the stage and seeing that kind of aggression, that passion, that kind of just relentless energy that he puts in and that's, you know, where I get it from. Mm. Um, you know, so it's really been there since day one. Um, it, it, you know, I had really kind of no choice, although, you know, I've been fortunate to be given a lot of, choice on what I want to do with my career and, yeah, sure. my education, yeah. Going back to Tony Brock's drums, it's a big drum kit too, eh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, massive. Man, I'm a big Tony Brock fan. Um, I remember um, listening to him the first time, uh, I think it was Barnstorming. Yeah. And I didn't know who he was at the time and it wasn't until I actually came to Australia and um, the first band I – the first covers band I ever played in in Australia was actually a Cold Chisel covers band, okay, called called Circus Animals, and we obviously we did a whole bunch of chisel stuff, but we started learning um, some of uh, your dad's solo stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So we'd yep. put a few of them in there, and I just remember having to learn those parts, and um, yeah, we used to play songs like um, "Got to Be with You Tonight" and um, yeah. Oh man, I just yeah, and then when and when the um um where where your dad did the the soul music, yeah, soul deep, yeah, yeah, soul deep, something wrong with my baby and and yep. river deep mountain high, that stuff. Oh man, just blew me away. And it was the yeah. guitarist in the band that told me, oh, this guy, his, his name's Tony Brock. Yeah, yeah, Tony, Tony's a beast. You know, I still keep in touch with him. He, he's in LA, and you know, obviously, he'd come from the babies, the babies before yep. Dad yep. and um, Rod Stewart's band. Um, there's actually some really cool footage of him playing with Rod Stewart online, and you know, so I keep in touch with him. He's he's done a like a the the babies have reformed and done a new album. So, 
yeah, he's still he's still around and drumming in LA, and yeah, it, it's it's been great to keep in touch with him over the years, and yeah, he's a he's obviously a huge influence on me as a drummer, and um, yeah, he, he was the guy that really introduced me to it. Yeah, um, how long was he um, around through your um, childhood? I mean, how long was mm-hmm. he in your dad's band and? and- um, were you sort of old enough at the time to take any lessons from him, like actual physical yeah, lessons, yeah. or was it more the sitting at the drum kit, sound check, that kind of thing? It, it, it was like it wasn't like kind of um, lessons, as in like you know rudiments and yeah, yeah, yep. that kind of thing. It, it was it was more just he was passing off or passing on his wisdom, you know, and um, just kind of you know showing me where everything was, what everything was, what they do, and um, you know he was there as the drummer until really when we moved to France, which would have been 1993, 94. Um, and that was when I got my first actual kind of lessons. Um, Dad used a drummer uh, called Neil Martin uh, from the UK. And he, not only is he a phenomenal live drummer, but he's also an educator. Uh, so he was the first guy that really had me, you know, working on technique and, things like that, they're, they're the earliest memories I have of actually kind of studying the drum set and kind of that was where, you know, I went from, you know, just playing along to records to actually practising things that were going to benefit, that still benefit me, you know, now as a professional drummer. Yeah. Who were, who was some, what was some of the other music you're listening to? Uh, growing up, I kind of listened to really whatever dad would play me, um, uh, he introduced me to a lot of bands growing up. Um, some ones that really stand out for me, I really loved Soundgarden, still do. It was a huge Soundgarden fan growing up. Um, I loved Pearl Jam, that album 10 when I was a kid. I just yeah. was, obs- Game changer, I was obsessed with it. I was obsessed with it. Um, so I really loved those two bands. But then, you know, Dad would play a lot of soul to me, He'd play a lot of like uh, Otis Redding and, you know, yeah, all, all the old soul stuff. Obviously, yeah, he did Soul Deep around you know when I was around six years old. I think it was so that was you know hearing that kind of music got me into soul and rhythm and blues and rock and roll. Obviously, um, Deep Purple were a huge influence on me early on. Mm. Uh, Led Zeppelin with Bonham, but you know I've always been a huge Ian Pace fan. Uh, Dad introduced me to the Meters quite young. Uh, Zigaboo, who is you know a legend for me you know uh, yep people always ask who your favorite drummer is and it's really hard when you've had so many influences but i guess if i could be a combination of ian pace and zigaboo that would be my perfect drummer oh man that's a <laughs> lot of notes played really really loud <laughs> <laughs> but but surprisingly not you know loud but not you know loud just for the sake of being loud no no i know just to, just yeah. that just that ian pace power eh? Yeah, and you know they're both they've got that a bit of jazz background as well. So there's a lot of that kind of improvisation and just kind of spontaneity of the, in their drumming that I love. Mm. Um, is is yeah. Zigaboo still around these days? Yeah, yeah, he, he's he, he's yep. um I think he lives in San Fran. Mm. I met him years ago, and um, so that was really cool. I met him at the Nam show. Still the only Nam show I went to, which probably about eleven or twelve years ago, and I met him there. And he's you know we 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 send each other a message from time to time. He's, he's a legend. Um, and Ian Pace, you know, uh, Dad has known the Deep Purple guys for many years and um, Ian's actually come over to the house and I've had a few lessons with him, which was really oh, fortunate cool. as a, as a young fella. So <laughs> I, I was probably about 10 years old when I 
um, had a couple of lessons with him. So that was really cool. That was when um, Deep Purple were out in Australia mm-hmm. and um, and Dad actually got up and sang with them in their encore at their show. Yeah. Um, another drummer obviously um, synonymous with your dad is uh, Steve Presswich. Um, yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. Was he around much? He, he was, um, you know, uh, obviously by the time I came along, um, Chisel were done and yep, um, yep. They, they didn't see each other that often. But, you know, I did know Steve growing up and did see him, you know, a fair amount. And mm. I, I never really had lessons with him, but he was mm-hmm. one of those guys like Tony that would always, whenever we were together, he would always impart some wisdom and um, mm. just kind of, you know, he would, tell me stories and just talk about the drums and, yeah, I kind of um, really kind of got to know him better around the time Chisel reformed, which was 1998. That's and they the, that was the last one. Last one of summer. That's when I first and only time I, I got to see him, him play. It yeah. Was Kudos Bank Arena. It was called something else then. But, uh, well, no, was yeah. it the entertainment No, it was at the Ant Centre, entertainment centre. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, yeah, of course, of course it was because it was before the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, that that was just awesome. We were we were up the top side of stage, um, you know. I got to look look, you know, down at him, right down at side, him. Yeah, yeah. side on, you know, yep. high hats. That's kind of facing me, and yeah, it was phenomenal. And this is around the time um, we'd been playing this cold chisel show for a little while. Yeah, you know. Yeah, cool. Um, and of course, I, I kind of got right into him. Trying to learn that music, trying to learn those parts, and and try and play them as authentically as I could, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Steve, that around that time, you know, um, I was really kind of getting more serious with my drumming. You know, I was going into um, high school, and you know, I was studying a lot and playing a lot of music. I was at, I'd already started playing in Dad's band. Um, so I, I, I basically started around that time, right around, I was about 12 or 13 years old. Mm. I would get up and play one song in dad's show. Mm. Um, and I would always be kind of asking, you know, oh, can I play two songs? Can I play three songs? And dad was like, no, you're not, you're not ready yet. You're not ready. Um, but you know, but then they recorded that album. Steve was there. I remember actually he used one of my snare drums for that whole album, which was a, it was like a, I was a. DW Collector's Maple, I think, a 13-inch snare. Mm. He ended up borrowing that and using it on the whole whole record, which was cool. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like I, I got to hang out a lot with him during the recording of that album and kind of get to know him better, you know, because obviously I was uh, going into my teen years, so I was really kind of, um, yeah, I, I just was a sponge. I wanted to learn. And, mm. and you know, it, it was really sad that he that he passed, you know. Uh, we, we miss him dearly. Um, he was such a influential drummer for Australian music, and yeah, it's it's so, it's so sad that he died so young. Mm. All right, let's let's go a little bit back to your um, your sort of your school years, mm-hmm. um, and you were talking about your studies. Were you actually starting to study music at that time, learning to read um, rudiments? Um, was there any local mm-hmm. teachers that you were? Mm-hmm. Um, learning from at that stage? Yep. I mean, yeah, so up until, you know, we obviously, yeah, going back a bit, we moved to France in 93, 94, um, and I was playing drums then but not really studying. When when Neil, Dad's drummer, would be out at the house or we'd be at the, on, on the road, he would give me lessons. But drums I was really just playing for fun. Yep. I was actually studying piano already, so I'd learned to read 
uh, from about, you know, six or seven years old. I was reading piano music, playing classical music. Uh, so when we got back to Australia in 96, um, I, I went into a school in Sydney, uh, Cranbrook, and, you know, studied music from there on. And I was, I was studying not only piano but drums, uh, tune percussion, so orchestral percussion as well, uh, violin I was studying. I did like a, a year of bassoon as well, I think. It was like it was one of those things I just, if they said, oh, we need someone to play this obscure <laughs> instrument in the orchestra, I would kind of pick it up just because I was always cool. curious and I wanted to expand my horizons, so to speak. But in terms of drums, I um, from 96 until I graduated in 2003, I was studying with uh, Tony Jex at, at Cranbrook. And, yeah, Tony was great. He, was, he really kind of had a, a, a focus on, you know, reading, um, charting, you know, following charts, uh, playing different styles. He got me playing, you know, some big band jazz, a lot of that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, he, he had a good focus on technique as well and on rudiments. So he was the first guy that really kind of upped the ante in terms of the technical side of the teaching. Um, and, you know, I've, I've a great appreciation for the time I spent with Tony learning. Yeah. Mm. Was there school bands you were involved with at that stage? Yeah. Yeah. So there was like, you know, um, mainly like concert bands, saxophone ensemble, mm -hmm. uh, various kind of like woodwind ensembles, percussion ensembles uh, in terms of the drumming and percussion. And, you know, we, we entered a lot of comps and won a lot of comps, um, performing arts ones. And um, I was also in the orchestra, uh, first violinist, and, you know, I was giving concerts as a, as a pianist as well. Wow. And I kind of got to a cross. I was doing singing as well. I was doing kind of operatic and... Um, and theatre singing, um, you know, so I was entering like Italian aria competitions and, you know, yeah, it was, I was kind of like involved in pretty much every part of the music department at that school that I, that I could be, you know. If there was something that I hadn't tried before, I would try it and, um, you know, I was very close with a lot of the teachers um, in the music department there and kind of, yeah, it was one of those things that, I was, I was there more than I was in class. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a good thing though. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's obviously paid off. Yeah, um, and I, I ended up being captain of music there in year 12. So that was, you know, a, a pleasure. Um, and it was um, it was nice during year 12 to have, you know, younger students coming through that were really keen to get into music and being able to, you know, take that take on that role as a bit of a kind of um, leader in, in the music department there. So that was nice. Um, and then and then it obviously turned into professional life. Yeah, yeah. You started uh, playing in your dad's band as a keyboardist, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, yeah, outside of playing, you know, the one song for, mm. for you know, from around 12, 13 years old, yeah. What, um, oh, sorry, what, what was the song? Uh, Hard to Handle, Otis Redding Oh, song. cool, awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, that was, yeah, and I, I've always, you know, loved that song. You know, Dad played me a lot of Otis Redding growing up, so that was really cool. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, the opportunity, uh, like, came up to, um, you know, I'd auditioned a couple of times for the for the drum seat and not gotten the gig. And, you know, my dad would always say, you're not ready yet, work harder. And so I'd go back, practice more and, you know, um, and, and thinking back now, I much appreciate that he didn't put, throw me into the band 
before when he did because he he was right. I wasn't ready. Um, I was, you know, I hadn't my drumming hadn't matured to the level that it needed to be at, mm. um, and obviously, um, you know, didn't want to just get it because I was his son. I wanted to earn it. Um, yeah. Yep. So the you know obviously I, I kind of hit a crossroad when I finished high school because I was I like I said I was involved in a lot of different parts of um, the music department. I was kind of thinking of going to the con and, and studying to be a concert pianist. So that was one route which was kind of open. Um, I was playing first grade cricket, so that was another route that mm. was interesting to me. I was playing professional football as well as a goalkeeper, um, and I actually went over to Scotland. Um, for a season and and trained and played, um, and then I was also drumming. I was doing tours in between that, so it was one of those things. I was kind of dividing yeah. my time, yeah. and most of those different groups were all saying, "Oh, well, you have to really pick one, yeah, pick one, pick one." And then the the opportunity came up where um, Dad needed a keyboard player, and you know, I, I, I've always been a, and I still say this now, I've always been a, a classically trained pianist, so I don't have that kind of, um, what do you call it, the, uh, the you know, improvisational ability that, you know, some of the great keyboard players that he's had have, but I was able to learn the parts, play them, be solid, um, and, and, I, and I did a couple of tours as the keyboard player, um, which was fun. I, I mean, I wouldn't say it was really my comfort zone, but it was one of those things I was happy to help out at the time. Right, um, and then the drum seat became available shortly okay, so, thereafter. So who, so who was playing drums at that stage? Uh, Warren Trout. Oh, okay, yeah. right, cool, awesome. Yeah, There's another monster. Another you, you, monster, you've been... and, and another another great influence on me. Yeah, yep, um, yeah. I, I have him on my list here as, as you know drummers that that were around that that and I'm sure would have been an influence. Like I mean, yeah, obviously. Um, <laughs> We're just talking about Tony Brock and Steve Presswich, and I had, I had Warren on here, and um, Joe Acaria was around a little bit too. So yeah, just yep. monsters all around, man. Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, no. Was it was a tease? A great bloke, and um, yep, someone who I looked up look, look up to uh, very much. So, and um, he's he's a great guy, a great friend, um, and he was a great influence on me um, at that time. You know, like I remember just before that. You know, we would be in the studio, and he was, you know, helping me out with technique as well, and giving me advice on on you know live performance. So, mm. yeah, I, I, I you know did, didn't take that for granted at all. You know, when I when I stepped in there, I wanted to make sure that I was, you know, up for it. Yeah. So you know that. Yeah. Eventually, when I got the drum seat, you know, Dad finally said, "You're ready. I'm going to give you a go, and um, and it's up to you to make that your seat." And um, so that was the challenge you threw out to me. So, right. So, yeah. walk us through a um, drum a drum chair audition for Jimmy Barnes. Well, it's really just the he gets the the band into the studio and he just kind of says, "Let's play." And usually he'll kind of run through a, a kind of mock set and just kind of you just have to play it with the ferocity that you would a live show. Right. Um, and you also have to gel with the musicians and you have to, you know, obviously get along with him as well. And, and you know, luckily having grown up in that circle, you know, all of the people that were in the band were all um, friends and they're all people that I know really well. 
Uh, and obviously dad is, you know, he's my best friend. Um, you know, so we had a, we have a, we've always had a connection. Um, and, you know, I, I know him more than most people do and, uh, and know him musically as well. So um, it's one of those things, you know, I know what he's kind of thinking when he's running around the stage and where he's going to go and what he's going to do. And, you know, I kind of use that to my advantage, you know, use that to kind of drive the show along. And I know how, um, yeah, how tough he is and how much of a perfectionist he is because I'm the same. Mm. Yeah. That's really cool, man. I mean, I, I've worked, um, for most of my career and my trade with my father. Um, and I had situations where it, like the different places we'd go and work at, we wouldn't know everybody. Mm -hmm. So I would quite often, you know, being, being the son of, you know, my father and, and quite often my father would be in a, um, like a supervisor's role or something and I'd be there, man, did I get tested, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it sounds like you probably didn't have to go through that, which is which is good. I mean, what I mean by tested is tested by, not by my father. Mm, mm. Of course, my father's going to, you know, test me and he, he knows that I do my job, but it was it was the other people in, in the workplace that would test me, you know. Oh, no, I've, I've definitely had that, yeah. I've, have I've you, been right. pulled aside. I've been pulled aside by some very, you know, competent musicians and people that I, you know, and I won't name names, but I no, have no. been pulled aside and... um. And told, yeah, you need you need to really work your ass off for this because you know, maybe you know maybe someone else deserves this more than you. And I'm like, and I was like, well, yeah, I don't right. I don't believe that's the case. But you know, so you know, I, I, and I have faced that. And mm. obviously, that in those times, it wasn't really kind of um, a social media driven business like it is now. Yeah. But there was like forums and stuff where I would read quite nasty things said about me about you know oh, you only really? got you only got the gig because you're his son and stuff like that. You know, so that was a, a that was a big uh, factor in um, leading me towards Berkeley. Um, because I, yeah. I'd already been in the band for a few years when, when I decided to audition for Berkeley, uh, Berkeley College of Music in Boston, which is, you know, one of the, the best and biggest um, music schools in the world. Yep. Uh, that came about from conversations with two people. Uh, one was Tal Wilkenfeld, bass player, mm. and the other was Michael Hegarty, also the bass player, dad's mm -hmm. bass player. Mm -hmm. um, and they had both, um, you know, just suggested, oh, maybe you should, go to the States and, and, and study uh, and expand your knowledge, expand your horizons. And so I, I took that on as a challenge to, you know, prove not only to all the people that were, um, you know, maybe doubting my uh, worth in that band to also proving to myself that I deserve to be there and, um, and making a name for myself outside of dad's band. So I wanted to, you know, go somewhere where I was anonymous and um, and could develop without that pressure. Mm. Um, and that was what Berkeley was for me. That was, uh, you know, I, I, I took a step away from uh, touring. I, I, not altogether, but I, I did step back from touring, obviously because I was studying full-time, but I was touring in the, in the holidays and in the breaks from studying. So, uh, you know, I, I did keep my gig, but, yeah, there were, you know, other drummers were, were touring with Dad when I was, at school and, um, you know, I, I was very lucky that dad was open to that. He, he was open in, and he was actually very, very proud that I kind of made that decision and he was happy to support, um, 
my development and um and he was really you know he said look you he he and and you know he's always been a huge supporter of me and he he was already happy with with the way I was playing the gig but you know he could obviously see that I had the drive to improve and get better and he he said look you've already earned your spot in my band when you come back it'll still be your spot you know so um you've got nothing to prove but I'm proud that you're trying to prove more yeah that's cool all right let's yeah. talk a little bit about Berkeley um yeah I had a Browns on the podcast at the start of the year when he oh, was cool, back yeah. in Sydney um yeah. you went you went there around the same time he was you probably there a bit earlier than him eh? I was there earlier, and um, yeah. it's it's funny because I back when um, when um, Tatler's jams were still a thing in Sydney, um, I remember Abe as a real young fella. He he came up and we he he asked me about Berkeley, oh, right. um, and so I, I had a good long log chat with him at Tatler's about uh, Berkeley and how much I loved it there, um, and I'm so happy that he you know was able to go there and that he's had such great success because he's a he's a beautiful guy and, a, and an incredible drummer incredible musician just musician now yeah not just the drummer like you know beautiful beautiful singer great bass player songwriter composer just doing it all is killing it man yeah makes you real proud you know cuz um the when i when i went to berkeley um it was kind of not as accessible as it is now to australian musicians it, the um, the Berkeley World Scholarship Tour didn't come to Australia at the time, so they didn't come here and audition students. So I, I had to go. To, I went to Boston right. to audition. Right. Um, yeah, because Abe, Abe auditioned here, didn't he? he yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I believe so. Anyway, I do. Yeah. Um, and and that was one of the things when I finished at Berkeley. That was one of the real things I kind of you know I'd established quite a good relationship with Roger Brown, the the dean, like the head of Berkeley, and I said to him, look. There's so many great young musicians that in Australia, you know, you go to places like Indonesia, Malaysia, Japan, why not come to Australia as well? It's so close if they're already there. And so, you know, that was a, one of the things that I was able to leave Berkeley with was that kind of helping set up that oh, great. For, for Australian students to have access to. So, but, you know, I, I, I wouldn't change how it all went for me because, um, you know, Going over to Berkeley to to audition was a crazy um, time, and it was a wonderful experience. I, I I stopped in New York on the way, and um, and I I met up with um, with Tal with Tal Wilkenfeld, and she was doing a gig, and um, I was I stayed there in New York for a couple of nights before I had to go up to Berkeley, and this is a this is a cool story. Um, cool. So I kind of researched the teachers. Um, and that, that were at Berkeley before I went and I was kind of excited to learn off certain teachers. And one of the ones that I was really excited to to study with was uh, Kenwood Denard. And uh, it, it, for anyone out there, if you don't know who Kenwood is, you should. He um, he was Jaco Pistorius's drummer um, as, along with many others and he is a long-time um, professor at Berkeley um, and... So he was one of the guys I was really excited to meet and kind of get to know. Uh, and so I was with Tal before her show and she was like, oh, I'm going to introduce you to a few friends of mine that are coming to the show. And I was like, okay, cool. So I get to the this gig. I can't remember what the venue was, but um, she she introduced me to Kenwood. So Kenwood was there and um, Omar Hakim was there. And so I was sitting between Kenwood, Denard and Omar Hakim 
and Anthony Jackson, great bass player. Yeah. Um, and so I was sitting with those three in the front row of her gig kind of just like going, wow, this is really why I left Australia and came over here was to, you know, just kind of sit in a gig with legends like this. Um, anyway, so uh, Omar was a cool guy, Anthony was cool, but I really kind of hit it off with Kenwood. Um, you know, we, we sparked a friendship that, you know, lasts to this day. You know, we keep in touch. He's still a, a close friend. Um, but, you know, we kind of ended up kind of drinking after the show and kind of hanging out and um, eventually it kind of got to about kind of 1 a.m. or something and, and Cameron went, oh, I've got to get the bus back to Boston. I was like, and I kind of realised, shit, I have to too. <laughs> and so it, and it turned out we were on the same bus. Right. So we were on the 2 a.m. Um, Chinatown, New York to Chinatown, Boston bus, which was a, uh, it cost about $12 or something at the time. And it took four hours. So we got into Boston about 6 a.m. Um, and I knew my audition was at 10 a.m. So, oh. so I kind of went and kind of gathered myself and kind of got ready. And anyway, so I, I, I go and I know I've got my audition and usually there's like two or three teachers in there that kind of test you on certain things just to kind of see what level you're at and stuff like that. And I, um, I walked in and Kenwood was, he happened to be, auditioning me um and so I, I'd, I'd spoken to him the night before how you know I was really nervous about it and he said look having spent the night with you kind of um hanging out I, I mean I haven't seen you play drums but I know you're going to be all right and that was really kind of settled my nerves and um when I walked in and saw that he was auditioning me that was really kind of it was cool he just gave me a kind of smile and a nod and uh and then it was kind of like he was you know, I played some stuff for him and whatnot. And, and that was the start of a, a, a wonderful friendship, you know. So the whole three and a half years I was at Berkeley, uh, I would spend maybe two, three hours with him every week. We would, um, we would go to Pad Thai Cafe, a little Thai place that was out, you know, uh, just around the corner from the main building at Berkeley. And then we'd go back to his office where he had a few drum sets and lots of records and stuff like that. And we, and he, we would just talk for hours Sometimes it would be a couple of hours. Sometimes it would be three, four hours. And um, you know, he'd come to my shows. He, you know, we would we were just, yeah. He, he was just a really good friend and a really great mentor. Um, so that was how you know that was the start of Berkeley for me. And then, yeah, it really was a a, a melting pot of it. Really was the perfect place for me because you know I'm really crazy about music. Yep. I was really wanting to immerse myself in it. And you're in an environment where everyone's as crazy as you. Yeah. And um, and everyone was just hungry to make as much music and as much different music as possible. So, you know, so I was I went from a meat and potatoes rock drummer, obviously with an eclectic music taste, but I went my my music taste became even more eclectic. So I was, you know, you know, jamming with funk bands like playing Latin stuff. I was in like African ensembles and like, you know, just really just playing as much different stuff as I could, you know. And, you know, that was where I really kind of started to see musical styles as languages. Um, right. and, you know, so what Berkeley gave me was a good vocabulary in a lot of languages. Um, and since then I've kind of made it my kind of life goal to travel to as many of these places and, you know, learn more about the culture and the music, you know. So wherever I go in the world, 
whether it's a Western or, you know, Eastern country, no matter, or South America, wherever. I'm, you know, trying to find some traditional music. I'm trying to collect some traditional instruments. I'm trying to meet local musicians. And for the most part, when I go there, there's usually someone there that I went to Berkeley with. So that's another cool that's part cool. of my Berkeley experience is that network, you know. Um, yeah, you just, I, I, no matter where I go, there's there's someone there that I can have a good hang with and make some music with. Yeah. That's cool. Abe talked about um, when he would go to, to the practice rooms. Yeah. There's like this um, whole lot of p- p- practice rooms there and, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, only had so much time to practice. But he, yeah. would, he, he would literally have people – Standing right in right in front of him, waiting for their turn while he was practicing. Did you? Yeah. Was it like was it like that for you there? Yeah, it was crazy. You, you had this kind of um, the one of the main practice rooms for the drummers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Berkeley's. I haven't been back in many years, but it's changed a lot apparently. But um, but when I was there, you would kind of give your student ID. You'd sign in for you know an hour, mm-hmm. and um, and if it was busy, you'd get an hour. If it, if it wasn't busy, you could usually get a few hours in or you could sign up again and go back in. But what what was, yeah, it's one of the things you go down in the basement and there were all these little kind of kind of fabricated little kind of solo drum rooms. It was basically like, you know, like a, oh, like a meter and a half by a meter and a half little kind of <laughs> tiny soundproof kind of thing that had been put. And there were probably about, 20 of them so there are about 20 kits in it and and you could hear them all like once you're in your little kind of box and you had your headphones on you were good but if you were walking around or you were the student that worked there signing people in it would be the worst job ever (laughs) because you were just you could hear just like it's like if you're standing outside someone's garage and they're playing it was like that but but 20 of them (laughs) um but but what was like it was kind of cool it was cool because we would have hangs down there we would like You'd, you'd be sweating so you'd kind of um, get out and get some air because they weren't really well ventilated um, and you'd kind of walk around and you'd just kind of check out other drummers and that that was the thing. Like it wasn't necessarily people saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm next, you you, you got to get out. It was more whenever you would take your break, everyone would walk around and watch each other and you'd kind of draw different yeah, right, influences. Right. Like I, I would, you know, like one of the guys who was quite often practising when I was there, was um, a guy called Matt Gasker, who's made a huge name now. He's huge, um, and we were students together, and we and we and we were mates. And so, you know, I'd go and see him shedding something. Go, oh man, that that was a cool thing. And then you'd, I'd say, what what was that? You know, you, the cool thing about Berkeley was that it wasn't so much a competitive thing. Like you could just knock on the door, or open the door, and say, hey, bro, what was that you played? Like. That was cool. Yeah, cool. And and then you know it was a it was a I learned as much off the other students as I did from the teachers, and that was the environment that they've set up there. Um, and then you know like it it wasn't um, unusual for you to be in a practice room and suddenly someone really famous walks past and stops and looks in. So I was I remember I was like <laughs> I was practicing some stuff, and you know the the thing about practice is it's not. If you if you're practicing stuff and you're nailing it every time, you're not practicing right because you should be trying stuff that you make mistakes and you want to be challenging yourself. So that what I was doing, what, I was having one of these sessions where I was kind of struggling with this lick that I was trying, and um, and John Blackwell Jr. just I looked up and he was just standing at the window, just like staring in. He wasn't smiling; <laughs> he was just like staring in. I was like. 
I don't know if I can swear on this, but I was like, fuck. You like, can, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, fuck, like he, he's looking scary, man. Um, he, anyway, scary so looking, then, he, yeah. he was a scary looking dude, eh? <laughs> no, he was, an, he was an absolute sweetheart. And it turned out, and, and he, um, yeah, so after I kind of, I got up and I opened the door and I kind of like said hello. And he was, you know, he was like, oh man, I like what you're playing there. I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm kind of making a lot of mistakes and messing up. He goes, yeah, that's what it's about. And yeah, you know, so guys like that would just kind of turn up that were, you know, Berkeley grads or were in Boston on tour. They would kind of, you know, f- float around. Um, like I can remember I was in a, I was in a rehearsal with a, with an ensemble um, and, um, and J.R. Robinson um, just like, poked his head in and he came in and just like, I just want to sit in and, and listen. And I was like, wow, this is like, and that, you know, there is why I went to Berkeley was to have access to those, that caliber of teacher and that caliber of musician just coming in all the time, you know, within the first month of being at Berkeley, uh, I, I saw, uh, I saw and met Steve Gadd at a clinic. I saw and met Stanton Moore at a clinic and I saw and met Mike Clark at, at a clinic. So that, that these are guys that, you know, might not come to Australia ever or if they do it's once in, you know, yeah. 15, yeah. 20 years, you know. So the, that calibre of, of clinician were coming through on a monthly basis there. So it was pretty pretty special, yeah. Yeah. I was looking at the list of teachers that um, were there and Rod Morgenstein yeah. Yeah. was that Right. So... When I was still living in New Zealand, um, I used to live in a town called Masterton, which is about an yeah. hour and a half from Wellington. Yeah, I've been there. So um, every couple of years, uh, a drummer would would come into Wellington and do a clinic. And the first one I saw was Dom Famolaro. So yep. I went down and saw him. And then, um, yeah, Rod Morgenstein came and he had the full the full drum kit set up, the left-handed. Yep. It was prem- a blue premier kit. He had at yep. the time, and he was there for Sabian cymbals. Yeah, and um, man, he's blew my mind. What a player! What, what a, player. a player! And, and, yeah. and one of the one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Um, Rod was a you know I studied with him for a semester, maybe two semesters, um, and he was wonderful. You know, it was funny because I walked in and he was he, you know he's a lefty yep. and plays on a left-handed kit, and he was like, I want I want you to start you know not don't have to focus on it, but he wanted me to um, practice playing on a left-handed kit and he's like well play with learn learn what you you know the basics of what you do with your right foot on your left foot as well um and i was kind of like you know why why do i need to do that and and he said you just never know when you'll need it and um mm. you know fast forward years later i was on tour um uh with the 10 tenors and they uh whoever had set up this particular show in germany hadn't rigged the stage properly and my steps collapsed as I was walking up onto the stage oh. and I and I broke my ankle. Um, oh, and so I did the first couple of, um, you know, first week or two of shows playing on the left pedal, on the slave pedal of the doubles right. uh, with my hats just closed and I had my right foot in an ice bucket. Um, yeah, so so I, I sent Rod a message after that and said, <laughs> thanks for thanks for pushing that. In the lessons because I appreciate it. And it's one of those things, you know, you might be playing a gig and your chain snaps or your beater breaks or something and and you might you have to switch over to, you know, the the left pedal and you you can get through it. Yeah. Um and and you know, I I think back to my first gig with my dad. 
as a young fella, which was, you know, a, a bit of a nightmare to be honest because um, my um, the bass drum pedal that I'd used on that gig, which was a really old, it was one of the original DW5000s, a uh, single pedal, and it hadn't been well maintained. And I can remember in the first song it just fell apart and, yeah, right. and didn't have a backup, you know, so I played the rest of the show on the floor tom as the bass drum. Yeah, so yep. it was just um, whereas, you know, if you've got a double pedal, you can just switch to that left pedal and you can, yep. you can, get, you can get through, you know. So I've always learned to have spares of everything. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. But, yeah, Rod, but Rod was a, a great teacher. Um, but, the, you know, the biggest influence on me at Berkeley outside of Kenwood, you know, who Kenwood was more of a mentor and I didn't really take like private lessons with him but at the yep. same time I spent a lot of time with him just hanging uh, but in terms of the teachers that I actually studied with, um, no one had a bigger influence on me than Dave DeCenzo. Um, and, yeah, everyone out there, if you don't know Dave, um, he's incredible. Um, he's played with an amazing array of artists and he's just an incredible teacher as well. He has a couple of books that are really, really great books and he's always posting little videos to do with those books online and, yeah, he, he's one of those guys I still keep in touch with and, um, yeah, he's just an incredible drummer, incredibly musical and incredibly expressive. Um, yeah, so he, he was the guy who I spent the bulk of my Berkeley time studying privately off. Uh, but, you know, there were other drum, other drum teachers there that were also incredible. Oh, just to, you know, I hope, hope I don't forget anyone, but um, Casey Shirell, uh, Bob Tamani, um, Jamie Haddad, who's been um, Paul Simon's percussionist since the you know early days, and um, learned some incredible stuff off him. Uh, was, Tony Tony Thunder Smith, who was Lou Reed's drummer. Right. Was um, Terry Lynn Carrington there at the time, or she was? was she, I, I never really yep. studied with her. Um, okay. Yep. Yeah, she she was. Um, I, I it, it was one of those. I kind of I was friendly with her towards the, the latter stages of my Berkeley experience, but she was very intimidating to, oh, right. to, to I, I found her very intimidating to talk to. Right. Um, and, um, and she wasn't always the friendliest with me, but, um, but later on she was fine, but I, I found her very intimidating, but I did watch her play a lot while I was there and she's incredible. Um, yeah, so many teachers there. Uh, Steve Wilkes, we, I did a great, an amazing studio drumming class with him. Um, Joe Galliota, who, who's like my, you know, he's like a drum brother to me. Um, he's he's the kind of he was the chair of the African music department, and he took me to Ghana and uh, got me into you know. Oh, wow. He helped me develop my kind of world drumming, and uh, you know, he's you know, the, the, and the the beauty of this is these are all. They're not just my teachers; they're my friends. Um, yep. You know, I came I came away from Berkeley with a degree, and you know, a, a, just a whole new world of friends. Uh, these guys are all people I, I respect, admire, and um, you know, we'll, I'll keep in touch with them. You know, for the rest of my life. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I can't stress enough how important Berkeley was in my development as a as a musician and as a human. You know. Um, yeah, just so many wonderful people, so many wonderful uh, musicians, and um, yeah, and and I'm really proud of you know the success that a lot of my friends have found since graduating. Yeah, so mm-hmm. yeah. Just going back to Matt Gasker, back then, 
was he like? I mean, because he's a, he's just a just a phenom, man. He's just incredible. I, the stuff yeah. he does is, uh, you know, it just blows my mind. I don't think there's too many, in, in my opinion, too many drummers that kind of play like that and phrase like that. You know, yeah. were you? Yeah. Did you kind of get that idea from him? It, it was it was that, funny. That he, like the when when I first met Matt, um, we were taking a oh, it was like a pop rock drum class with um, Mike Mangini. It was like a rock yep. drum rock drum styles lab. We called them labs because, you know, you'd go in, there'd be, um, you know, 10 drum sets in the room and the teacher's drum set, he would sit at it, play something, and you'd all have turns or you'd play stuff together. Um, and Matt was in that class with me. And I, and I, I just remember him as a, he was just a, a chill dude. He was a, um, you know, it wasn't one of those um, classes where you could be particularly showy, um, you know, I so I didn't get the idea of what, you know, I didn't really get the idea of what technical ability it had because we were really just, it, we were, um, you know, doing a bit more of the kind of basic rock stuff. Um, okay. But, you know, I can definitely tell you he practised an insane amount, um, mm-hmm. much more than me. Uh, he was so dedicated and, yeah, he just, yeah, uh, he was he was always talented, man, and and he just took it. He, he the thing with Matt is he's always wanting to take it to the next level. Like he's always like, you know, he the last time I saw him, he was telling me how, you know, he he was like, oh man, I just and he's already playing incredible shit, and I'm like, <laughs> he's like, I don't know, like I I feel like I need to do more, and I'm like, dude, you're already incredible, and and that's you know that's the the curse of being the way we are, wanting to, you know, excel. You always want to take the next step and get better, which is a, it's a great trait to have. Um, but, yeah, he's, he's insane. He's a, he's a good bloke, incredible drummer. He works incredibly hard, um, practices like a mofo. Yeah. Mm, mm. Yeah. Okay, so Berkeley, Berkeley ends, you leave Berkeley. What did yep. you have lined up when you got back? Did you, did you stay in the States for a bit or did you come home? I had the option of staying in the States. You know, when you finish at Berkeley, they give you uh, a year work visa. Yeah. It's called it's called an OPT, so an optional, optional practical training visa. Um, I looked into that and wanted to do that, but I, I had a, you know, about a three, four-month tour lined up with Dad at the, at the end of that. Um, and one of the criteria for the OPT was you have to – you can't leave the states for I think it was more than like thirty days within the year or something, wow. and I was gonna I was gonna be away for the first three months, so I kind of I I opted out of that, um, and I I went back on the road with Dad, but I you know I came back as a completely evolved drummer to what I was when I went over there, um, and it was like you know um, guys like Wazza T Warren Trout. You know, he he. I remember him telling me when I got back from Berkeley how much I'd improved, and you know, it was really nice to hear because I, you know, I really uh, worked a lot over there to to get better. Um, uh, then um, that was around the time I signed with Tama, so I um, recorded a record with Dad in LA where the bulk of the drumming was done by Kenny Aronoff. Um, and it was one of those things. There was kind of a, it was a bit of a, a bit of a kick in the guts because I had been told, "Oh, you're coming over to do this record. You, you and Kenny will be splitting the recording." Um, 
And um, when I got there, um, Don Gaiman, the producer, pulled me aside and said, look, I know you've been told um, a certain thing, but I trust Kenny more than you and you're here to learn, so watch and learn. <laughs> and, I, and I'd gone there, you know, as, you know, as dad's drummer, as, uh, you know, I'd just graduated. I was kind of like, you know, I felt like I was, you know, I'd earned that and, and then I was kind of like, you know, I'd, I bit my tongue a bit and I was like, you know, don't react. And um, so I sat and watched... Kenny and, uh, you know, Kenny's incredible. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I got along with Kenny like a house on fire. Um, we we hung out, you know, everyone would leave the studio and we'd stay back and like, you know, I was kind of showing him African percussion and we, we were just geeking out and just talking drums. Um, you know, so I kind of made a positive out of that. Um, that was mm. the album Rage and Ruin. Um, and... It got to. It finally got to about the kind of seventh or eighth day of recording, and um, and Kenny came up to me and goes, "Oh, it's your it's your turn. You've got a track. Um, go on, man." He goes, "I, I believe in you." And um, it was one of those things. I, I remember I had the cans on and I could hear Don Gaiman uh, talking over the talkback, talking to Mark Durnley, who was the assistant engineer, and he said, "Oh." You know, because obviously Kenny's a powerhouse and he's an animal, and um, and I can remember hearing Don saying, "Oh, you know, um, yeah, we're gonna have to watch the levels here because, uh, yeah, I don't know if he's got the power um, oh. that, that Kenny does, and I, and I don't know if he meant for me to game hear on, that, but I heard that and I was like, oh, you motherfucker, yeah, um, game so, on. So then he goes, oh, okay, Jackie, um, have, can you play something for me? And so I played a groove. And he goes, oh, we're not gonna have a problem here. Um, oh, good. And, you know, so and I, I played that one track that I got on the album and, you know, I nailed it and um, I did a lot of, uh, you know, vocal arrangements and kind of stuff for the album, other like percussion. So I've contributed a lot more than I, uh, the, apart from the drums, you know, and, and it was one of those things. By the end of the recording process, um, Don pulled me aside and said, um, you know, I'm really proud of how you've, Taken this on and taken on the advice, and I would, I would hire you any time. Oh, um, cool. You know, so that that was nice. Um, and 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 I've you know, Don is a you know he's a, a close family friend. You know, so we he's known me from I was, since I was a little kid. You know, because he produced some of Dad's biggest albums in the you know ni- early nineties, and um, you know, so when I when I was going to LA at the time, I was staying with Don and his family. You know, so um, yes, it was a kick in the guts to hear that from him. But you know, I have a great amount of respect for him, and that was why I chose not to react to it, and I chose to you know work my ass off and, and just try and impress him and just show him that I had you know had what it, what it takes. And you know, to hear that validation at the end of that record was really really cool. Um, and you know, so um, and then. Obviously, Kenny, you know, got me, he introduced me to the head of Tama in LA um, and that led to conversations to, you know, Tama in Australia and that's, um, you know, 10 years this year uh, that I've been a Tama artist. So, um, yeah, um, I have Kenny to thank for, you know, reintroducing me to Tama because obviously I grew up playing Tamas with Tony Brock. Yeah. Um, And... Then you know uh, I spent a number of years with Pearl Drums, and then when it, when the opportunity came to to sign with Tama, it was like a kind of homecoming because they were they they were like the sound that I kind of knew from when I was a kid. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. 
So it kind of it, it was one of those things when I sat at those drums, they felt comfortable and they felt they felt punchy. They felt kind of big sounding and 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 their and their um their hardware is just unbreakable. Right. I've broken some things, but you know, they're for the most part unbreakable. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Really cool. So when did the ten tenors thing come about? Yeah, so that was it came out of the blue. Um Okay, so the cool thing was I went back to Berkeley actually and I took my mum and dad. Um, so I'd introduced, so that album Rage and Ruin, I'd introduced dad to one of my songwriting teachers, Mark Simos, um, and he actually came out to Australia, did some songwriting seminars and and, um, and he co-wrote half of that album with dad and I co-wrote a song with the both of them. Um, so that was really cool. Then... Mark had kind of suggested, oh, we should um, we should bring your dad to Berkeley. Um, and I thought that would be a cool idea. And my dad is um, one of those guys, you know, he grew up in poverty and had no education um, in, in, in anything really, let alone music. So he hadn't studied music. He didn't know how to read music and any of that. And um, so we kind of, um, we did this cool thing where we went to Berkeley, mum, dad and I, um, Dad and I taught a, a, an ensemble for a semester and the trade-off for, for that was Dad and Mum got to study at Berkeley for a semester. Oh, wow. So, they, you know, that was the first time in my dad's adult life that he'd studied um, and I could, you know, it was, it, was really, it was really awesome. You know, we were staying in this apartment in, in Boston and, um, you know, my mum and dad would go out the door in the morning with their books and, come back with folders of stuff and like I'd be helping them with work and then, you know, dad and I would go to this ensemble where there were these young kids and we were we were t- basically teaching them about putting together bands. Um, you know, right. it, was a, it, was a, it was an Australian music ensemble so dad got to, you know, these were guys who knew of his music and wanted to sing his music and he kind of mentored the singers and I mentored the band. So it was really cool to be back at Berkeley on the other side kind of seeing it from a teacher's standpoint um and getting that perspective on berkeley which was really cool anyway i was in the i was in the the our apartment in boston and i got a a call out of the blue from it was oh I'm trying to remember who it was but he he he'd tech for us and um and he said oh i've got a, a manager of a group called the 10 tenors asked about a drummer and I suggested you and do you mind if I put you in touch? And I, at that point, I didn't really know who they were. I'd heard the name, but not really kind of, um, yeah, I'd not really kind of heard about them much, but you know, then I looked up on YouTube and I was like, Oh, they're doing some pretty big shows and it's a pretty epic show. So I spoke to the manager on Skype from, uh, from my apartment in Boston. Um, and, he was just like, yeah, uh, this was uh, would have been the end of the year because it was, yeah, it was the fall semester, and he was like, um, yeah, you've got about um, a month until you have to come up and rehearse. So, are you in or are you out? And I, he sent me the contracts that that straight after that Skype meeting, and I'd signed a contract with the Tantanas the next day. Um, so I got back to Australia at the end of the semester, um, and. You know, I met up with um, uh, Michael Manicus, the the MD at the time. Um, he, yeah, so we, we met up and he gave me all the charts and then 
I flew up to Brisbane. Um, you know, this is before I called Brisbane home, um, mm-hmm. but I flew up to Brisbane, stayed there and um, did the rehearsals and then we were out to Europe and it was, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a crazy time. It was like something like 150 shows in like the space of six months or something and, and you know, Jeez. we had shows around Europe, about, you know, 70 shows in Germany alone, I think, something like that. It was, yeah, it was, a, it was that was a, a, that was a cool gig for me because it was a challenge. It was the first gig I'd ever had where I had to read charts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously I'd, I'd, you know, spent a lot of years, you know, studying theory and whatnot. Um, but that was the first um, gig where I had to really play specific stabs, specific parts um, because they, you know, they didn't tour with a, they didn't tour with a bass player. They toured with a guitarist and a, and a, and a keyboard player who was the MD and, and drums and the bass and orchestra were all tracked to click. And so right. I had that in my, in my head. So I had to be really precise with what I was playing. It wasn't the kind of gig where you could move around and kind of, yeah, you, you, you had like the, the, te- the tempos were automated. So if the song slowed down, the, the click would as well. So you had to really just, that, that was a real um, great experience for me because, um, yeah, the reading factor and then the, you know, stylistically as well, playing a mixture of pop, classical, orchestral, you know, so you're playing sometimes orchestral parts on some toms or something and right. having to come up with those flavours to, you know, make it not just a pop rock gig. Um, and then also, you know, I was in a Perspex, Perspex cage as well for the sound. Um, was that had that be, was that the first time you'd done that? Um, it wasn't. It was a, around the second or third time I'd done a couple of DVDs with Dad and recordings where we had right. strings and stuff like that. Where I was in Perspex, but um, that was the first time I'd been in a in a like an actual Perspex box. <laughs> so there's <laughs> yeah. a, there's a photo on my Facebook from a gig we did in Bangkok where we played. Right. I think it was a Moscow Symphony Orchestra came out and or one of the big orchestras from Moscow came out and. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a bit of a nightmare playing along with them because we had the conductor and, you know, I still had the click in my head and the conductor had oh. the click, but they didn't have enough sends to send the click around to all the orchestra. So, and then oh, it was like a, a like a 90-piece orchestra or something. And so they, they, <laughs> the only way they could contain me was to build, I literally had to get into onto the kit and they built a Perspex <laughs> box around me and I was fully closed in. And when I had to get right. out, they would take a panel off and I would get out and then they put the <laughs> panel back on. Um, but, you know, that, that, was a, that was a very cool experience. That was, um, you know, uh, you know they're, they're lifelong friends that I've made in the 10 Tenders as well, you know. Um, you know, since, yeah, uh, great people. Um, I, I really enjoyed my time working with them and, you um, yeah, it's one of those things you you, ne- you never say never, you know. Like it's one of those things yeah. I, I I've never liked to burn any bridges, um, you know. So I've moved on from gigs, but you know I've always moved on in a way that you know if an opportunity arises, I could do it again. Um, That's cool. And and if they would ever call me up and say, "Oh, do you want to do something?" Whether it's one or two shows or a whole tour, absolutely, I'd be open to it. So um, that was a great experience, and you know, they're still some of my my best friends from that from those tours. That's great. So what about around what year was that? Uh, that would have been 2012, 2013, yeah, because my first daughter was was born 
while I was on that, or she was, uh, my wife was pregnant while I was on that first big tour. So 2000, start of 2013, yeah. Right, okay, so you, came, you obviously came home to. Yeah. Came back to Australia to be with your kid. Yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah, yeah, I missed a, a lot of that pregnancy, but um, but you know that that's you know the sacrifice we make to, you yeah. know, to you know pay the bills and put food on the table for your family, and that's you know this is my full time job, you know, so there are times where I'm away for a long time, but yeah, I was never going to miss the birth. That that was for sure, mm. and luckily it did fall in between tours anyway. So, yeah. right, okay, so so what? We're just trying to stay a little bit on the timeline, yeah. a little bit, just to try and lead up. So, um, what sort of came out, came about after that? Was it the um, uh, probably was that around the time of Dead Daisies? Probably Dead Daisies, yeah. So okay, um, yeah, Dead Daisies. You know, that, David Lowy, I'd known for a long time. You know, I'd actually gone and I oh, did some some jamming with him at his house, like, and this is before Dead Daisies, but he, you know, David Lowy is a, you know, incredibly successful businessman with the Westfield Group um, and his kind of side gig was music. He always wanted to be a musician. And if you look at him, he's got the long hair and the look, he, he doesn't look like your average businessman. And he kind of, um, he, he's always wanted to kind of put super groups together and, he did that and it's kind of been one, Dead Daisies has been one of those bands that's kind of like got a bit of a revolving door Revolving of door, yeah, it's, yeah. It's I was kind of reading, like, reading a little bit about them last night. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're kind of, um, yeah. it's always been a, a an eclectic mix of musicians, usually with some sort of profile. Um, and I got the call. So they had done a tour um, opening up for Dad, which I was on, Um and that was with John Stevens singing, and uh, mm-hmm. John Tempesta was the drummer. So that was oh, right- from the from the cult. Yeah, so that's where yeah, I got yeah. to that's where yeah. I got to know John, and um, and John's a dear friend. He's a he's a absolute monster. Uh, mm-hmm. But obviously, I think there was some um, scheduling things with the cult after that tour, and he stepped aside, and they got Brian Tishy in um, mm-hmm. as the drummer, and then Brian, I think he was. Um, he he has some like side businesses in the states, like some tribute shows that are that are big money makers for him, mm. and I think that coincided with the recording of their album, um, and then they got a new singer as well, and um, they just they approached me and said, "Oh, Brian can't do the record. Um, they they're going to record the album in in Sydney. Will you do it?" And I was like, "Sure, yeah." Um, so at the time it was, um, who was in it? Marco Mendoza was playing bass. Mm. Uh, and Marco's incredible. You know, he's played with everyone, Whitesnake, uh, Thin Lizzy and many others, you know, so he's, uh, and he's a cracking bloke. He's hilarious. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was great to play with him. Dizzy Reed from uh, Guns N' Roses, the piano player. Yep. Um, Richard Fortas um, from Guns N' Roses as well uh, on guitar. And uh, John Karabi singing, yeah, um, and then David, obviously David Lowy on on rhythm guitar, and so um, yeah, kind of we went into three hundred one, and they kind of wrote the songs on the fly, and I just I was cool. there, I was just there as the drummer and and percussion and backing vocals and whatnot, and yeah, that was really cool. It was a it's a pretty epic sounding album. Um, that there were there were like something like two songs on the record that Brian had previously recorded that they put on the record, and then the rest is all me. So, 
there's even a, a, a song that Dad wrote with Glenn Hughes that they put forward for the album and ended up doing it as a duet with John Karabi. So that's cool. That's so cool. Dad's on that record. It's uh, called Revolution, Re- Revolution. It was uh, all all based around um, all based around them going back to. Oh, they were one of the first bands to go to Cuba when they opened up the borders and to oh, is that right? to American bands and stuff. So that was why that was called that. And um, uh, I think uh. I think one of the tracks that Brian had recorded on, they recorded on that trip to Cuba. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, the, the Dead Daisies. That's another you know band. You know, I know all those guys really well. Um, Glenn Hughes is now singing uh, and playing bass, and I think. Uh, Doug Aldridge is on guitar. Dean Castronovo is on drums. Yeah, so it's one of those. I, I got asked a, a couple of years ago if I could fill in for Dean, but it didn't work out like the, um, yeah, so I was asked to hold some dates. And, you know, it's one of those things like we bump into each other around and, you know, if something were to come up in the future, I'm sure I'd make some music with them in some capacity in the future. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. But that was a cool, cool album to be a part of. That was 2015. Um, I'm trying to think what came next in my career. Could be, um, oh yeah, I did. I, I made an EP of my own. Did you? Oh, just bef- before we talk, because I, I have got down here yeah. to talk about your, if you had solo music. Yeah. I just wanted to talk about um, Dean Castronova a little bit. Like I, I noticed that um, Jonathan Kane and Neil Sean, um, yeah. f- you know, family friends of you guys, and, yeah, yeah. and um, one of your early. Uh, one of your dad's early records, they they were sort of a part of. So yeah, it's yeah. kind of funny, like look reading that and then seeing the Dead Daisies and the Dean Castronova thing. It's yeah. all sort of it's all a, it's all a, it's all connected, uh, eh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and and now that you mention um, Jonathan Kane and Neil Sean, I forgot mm-hmm. to mention that around that just after I think it was just after the um, just after the Dead Daisies record, I went to the states and recorded with them. Um, yeah. So it was around that time because we were doing the thirty thirty record for Dad, which was his thirtieth anniversary of being a solo performer. So it was it was either late two thousand fourteen or early two thousand fifteen. I can't remember, um, but I was in the states and I did a track with um, Neil Sean and Jonathan Kane and Joe Bonamassa as well. Yeah, I, I was watching the video of that yeah. today. Yeah, so that was cool. And then um, and then we did a track with Keith Urban as well, which um, was was great fun as well. Um, and then who else? We did, um, you know, we did some stuff back in Australia. We, we did one with little Stephen, Steve Van Zant from Bruce Springsteen's yep. band, from the E Street Band. Yep. And, and Steve's, little Stephen is awesome. He's such a funny guy. And, um, you know, I've been fortunate to catch up with him on a bunch of festivals in the past few years. And it's always a good time. It's always a good hang. Um, and he has an incredible band. Um, then, you know, uh, John Stevens, um, we did something with Tina Arena. We did uh, a bunch of different features on that record, which was um, really cool. Um, yeah, so that was a fun album to make and it was fun to, you know, because obviously Neil and Jonathan played a big part in, you know, Dad's music in the 80s and around the time yeah. I was born, Freight Train Hard in particular yeah. and also Working Class Man as well, yeah. So those mm. couple of records were really you know, strongly influenced by those guys. And so for them to, I think it was cool to play with me because obviously they'd seen me as an infant and then the next yeah, they see right. me, I'm in the band playing the drums and so that was cool. Um, That's cool, yeah. That was, that was good fun, yeah. But, yeah, Dean, I, I, I never really, I've only met Dean once um, 
and it was we were on tour with Dad in Europe uh, two years ago or a year and a half ago or something like that, and they happened to be playing the same town and they happened to be staying at the same hotel. And so I caught up with all of them and that was when I met Dean for the first time. And he was a, he was a sweetheart. Obviously he had a, yeah. he went through a pretty bad, a rough t- bad rough thing time, yeah. to do with drugs, you know, and that's one of those things, you know, a, lo- a lot of the guys have gone through really bad shit when it comes to hard drugs. And, um, you know, mm. fortunately for him, he got the help he needed and he seems to have turned his life around, which is a good thing. And he's making music again, which, you know, that's all you ask. That's um, great. But it's also, you know, and the flip side of that too is it's so great to see Steve Smith playing with Journey again. Mm, um, mm. Yeah, he's one of my favourite drummers for sure. Yeah, see, okay, I've got a bit. It, it's just a, a very short Steve Smith story. Cool, cool. But um, I can remember that I told you I went to, I've been to one NAMM show and yep. I, I was a young upcoming drummer at the time and um, – and I was, I've, I've been signed with Zildjian for, you know, my, my whole career. And um, at the time, the head of A&R was uh, John DeChristopher and his assistant was a young lady, uh, Sarah. She's now Sarah Hagen um, uh, since she got married. And, um, you know, she was really supportive of me as a young drummer when I got to Berkeley because uh, obviously uh, Zildjian company is based in Boston or just outside Boston. So... Um, you know, I would always be welcome to come into the factory and look at cymbals being made and handpick some cymbals from the drummer's vault. And when I went to NAM show, you know, kind of I went around to all the different sponsors that looked after me and Zildjian were the ones that really treated me like family. And they were doing an artist signing this particular day that I was there and they said, oh, jump in and sign some stuff. I'm like, oh, well, no one knows who the fuck I am. Like, um, you know, there's no point. And she was like, no, just sit down there. Sit there. There's a seat right there. So I sat down and I was sitting between Steve Smith and Max Weinberg. Um, (laughs) And, um, you know, so it was kind of like um, just a drummer signing session and people were walking past me like left, right, center and not knowing who I was. And I was just like, and then, you know, Steve and Max would kind of like eventually like, oh, this is Jackie from from Australia, you know, get a signature now, you'll want it one one day. And, well, you know, we're, st- cool. we're still waiting for that day, but. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's coming. It's coming. Bro. But, you know, they, they, were, they were really, you know, I was just a young upcoming drummer then and they were really, you know, welcoming to me and, um, yeah. you know, made me feel less nervous. Yeah, so, um, no, it was nice to meet him then. And, yeah, he's, he's a, obviously a legendary drummer and, you know, phenomenal. Um, yeah, so. It's just one of those cool experiences, yeah. That's really cool. It sounds like we had a, you've had a few of them. That's that's really cool. Yeah. Um. All right. So, back in Australia now. Um. You know, you you're full time touring with your dad, and and you're also mm-hmm. playing with the Lockie Dolly group. Yeah. Which you were talking about a little bit earlier, which you've been playing with for a number of years now. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and you know it it seems like that's a band where you can really open up. Um. And before we talk a little bit about that, I want to ask: when you, like, in your dad's in your dad's band, um, are you given room to express yourself um, when you're playing, or is it is you know are you pretty confined to the? Um, I'm not talking about going outside the structures of the song, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, you know what I mean by that question? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, with with dad, you know, it's. Um, I'm given the artistic freedom if I want it, but yep. 
but what I've learned is that, you know, you have to do what the song requires and sure. what the show requires. Cool. Um, and that's not necessarily the place for it, you know. Like I, um, my job in that band is to be the relentless, you know, freight train, you know, the kind of, yeah, just kind of be the, you know, the, the engine room. I've just got to keep the, the groove and keep the pocket there. It's just got to be that relentless pocket. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, so I, I, I do take artistic freedoms. I throw little things in here and there. Occasionally, Dad will notice. He'll turn around and kind of give me a look. And but I, I don't do. I <laughs> does don't he give do you a look? Like, does he give you a look like Nah? It didn't work, bro. <laughs> I'll, I'll Sorry, bo- both. He gives, if it doesn't, he, he gives a, a certain look. And if it works, he kind of he'll, he'll, he'll give a different look. And it's yeah. one of those things. It's um. It's cool. It, it, it you just got to do what the show and what the song requires. And that show is a different show to to Lockie's. It's a different. It's a different beast altogether, and that's not discrediting either. You know, yeah, yeah. You have to, you have to be able to adapt to what you're playing, and and you know what I've learned over the years playing with Dad is that I know what he wants, and he wants it to be relentless. He wants it to be energetic, and he wants it to be solid. Yep. Um, you know, so all, all I have to do is just make sure that it is just yeah that that powerhouse gig, and that it's you know um, you, you're not dropping anything. You know, it's not. As soon as the balls drop out of that gig, he'll notice. He'll turn around. And he'll yell at you. Yeah, um, right. You know, so right. it, it doesn't doesn't matter if you're his son, you're whoever. Like, yep. If you if you mess up that gig, you know you you'll be held accountable. Um, and you know, so it's yeah. So with, with dad, it's like I yeah, I have different variations that I play on certain songs, and I'll, I'll play around with things. But for the most part, um, you know, it's not mapped out. It's not run to click. It's just a it, it, it moves, it, it pushes, it pulls. You know, for the first part of my career with Dad, I did play to a, a click. Right. Um, and then, you know, then I, I, it was just one of those things that kept everyone else kind of in time. No one else heard it. it was, I had it in my head. And then, um, was that, was that, after, was that by choice for yourself? Did you want to be playing to a click or? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, it was one of those things when I came in, I know Warren played to a click and uh, okay. so I was just like, I, the guys that I'd known before that had, had played to click. So I was like, well, I'll, I'll do the same and I'll make sure that's part of my skill set, which is also a very important skill to have, you know, um, being able to play along to a click like that because it makes you effective in studio applications. It's, it's good for, you know, um, yeah, for, just you know, finding your pocket. If you're playing along to clicks, you know you're you're developing a good sense of time. And then once you take it out, um, you kind of that pocket moves around a touch. But it beca- you you kind of add your personality to it. So yep. you know, it was just one of those things. Like when I came into the gig, it was like, yeah, it, it was part of part of it. Then um, there were a couple of gigs where you know that we didn't have the enough lines or something to run the click, and then I'd run it without it. And it was never a weird thing to run it without. It was just if we don't have it, we don't have it. Um, and then you know the front of house guy and the monitors guy said, "Oh, it felt really good without." And Dad, I, I went to Dad and said, "Look, do you mind if I just do this run without the click?" And he goes, "Yeah, for sure." Um, and then you know what I've found of late, you know, there are certain songs that you want. You know, because adrenaline is a is a incredibly hard thing to control sometimes, um, and no matter who you are, there will be times where you play things at either a faster or a slower tempo. Um, and you know, so there was on, on the last tour with Dad, it was like um, he he said, "Oh, maybe maybe run click for a few things." And so what I what I had was the um, the the Tama metronome, 
has a cool setting where you can um, program your set list in. Mm-hmm. You can hit go and it play and it plays click for eight bars, mm-hmm. and then it turns off and it switches to the next song. So you don't have to press next. It gotcha. just automatically goes to the next in the program. So, so then, gets, so it gets you know, I've got, you counting. It, get, it gets me. It gets me counting at the at the top of the song. So I know. Look, I'm 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 in the right pocket now, and it's not rushing or anything. And then it can move a little bit once that switches off. And then so I was running that for maybe. Oh, let's say if we had a 25 song show, maybe like 10 songs, mm-hmm. maybe even maybe a little less. Yeah. So it's just one of those. Um, yeah. It, it's just it's not a. It, it's it, it's both good and or a bad thing. You know, it's it's, it's it, it if the show requires it, it's yeah, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. So were you doing that to kind of? You were just talking about the adrenaline before, and and we, were you doing that to kind of just sort of calm yourself and bring yourself down to a bit of a level, and then you get kind of used to the, kind of reprogramming yeah. yourself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it was more like a you know like. I found it, and you find it even now. You you kind of get into habits. Yeah. Um. And I noticed, you know, certain songs I was consistently playing it at, at a, you know, just where it felt like it should be. Mm-hmm. Um. And then, you know, we've adapted the the tempos over the years. Like if it feels good for a certain period at a slower tempo, we'll 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 kind of keep, they'll become the normal. Yeah. Um. And you know, and then you, you would find some, and from the opposite side, you'd find often that um, it when you'd listen back to to the gigs and you'd hear like maybe one song, oh, that's too fast, and it loses its heaviness, it loses the effectiveness that it has. Right. So then you're like, well, to take out that kind of variable of, you know, the adrenaline, because you know that part of the, that part of the set is a, a high adrenaline section, mm. and when you're playing, you feel like you're playing it slower than you are. It's like, uh, but it, it, it's just that's the way adrenaline works. And so it just takes out that kind of, that risk factor, you know, you, yep. you know that you're going to be where the tempo is meant to be at the start. So, I mean, it's a it's an effective tool in that in that instance, and um, and it allows the song to maintain its heavy heaviness. Yeah, very cool. Because yeah, you, you can really mess up a song by playing it at the wrong tempo. So, um, it's just one of those things. You know, you uh, certain shows you want that kind of like if, if it's if it's like a a smaller kind of more intimate venue, then it's all right if it pushes and pulls more. But if it's like a big arena gotcha. and you've got, you know, it, it, you, you're kind of going to, you've got less less room to hide really. It's kind of, um, mm. yeah, so, and that last tour was a lot of arenas and a lot of really big venues. So we wanted to keep the tempos a bit more true, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's just, you just kind of, you make those calls tour by tour depending on what the artist wants and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, same same thing in recording. Sometimes you're, you're recording to click. Sometimes you're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Okay, so going back to the Lucky Dolly mm-hmm. um, band. So yeah, a lot more room to move. Um, yeah. Um, Lucky's an incredible performer. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the one of the best Hammond players around. Um, and yeah, he's, what he's a one of the best. Too, eh? He's one of the best musicians that I've ever worked with. You know, he's. Yep. He's a he's a guy that um, you know inspires you to and challenges you to you know innovate um, you know because mm. you know you're, you're playing with someone who's so good at something you you don't want to just be and that band it's like you don't just want to be the backing band you want to be a part of that sound you want yeah, to yeah. develop uh, yeah. you know a, a unique part of that 
of that sound, which, you know, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to know Lockie for many years and we've been making music together, not just in his band, but with other bands for, you know, man, like over 15 years now. So yeah. it's like, um, you know, so there's a long history there and there's a long friendship there. Um, you know, so I had the opportunity, you know, he, he approached me and said, oh, do you want to do some gigs? Um, I think it was about 2015 as well, probably. Um, and I was like, yeah, really. And it's great because, you know, like I've been in that band since it's kind of really kind of gone viral and kind of, you know, gone. It, it's gone up a notch in terms of the popularity and the, and the, yeah, and just the, the music as well. Like I look back at, um, you know, there's a particular show, um, Blues on Broad Beach in 2016, um, which uh, was kind of our first, one of our first viral videos from that show. Right. And I look back at the way we were playing then and it's so different to how we're playing now. In what way? Um, it just, it's just it's evolved in a way, you know. It's, um, right. You know, we've, we've, had a lot of, we've had a lot of time on the road together and we've had a lot of shit happen, good and bad, um, and that reflects in how a band evolves. And, um, you know, it's just, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, it was great then and it's great now. It's just a different, different beast. It's kind of taken on a new kind of intensity. It's, uh, it, it's just a, it's a, it's a fucking heavy three piece, you know, it's really, <laughs> really musical. It's really kind of keeps you on your toes, like playing that gig. It's really exciting because, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. It's going to, it's unpredictable, which is good. It's kind of that um, a bit of a, you know, throwback to music of the 60s, 70s where it's real a bit of experimentation. You know, you're trying things. You're kind of like that train that's on the edge of the tracks could yeah. derail <laughs> at any moment. But that's, that's what gives it the excitement and, and the audience really kind of take on that energy as well. Um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pleasure to make music with, with Lockie and, um, you know, we've had... Some phenomenal bass players, Jan Bagma, Chris Pearson, um, Joel Burton, um, James Hazelwood, you know, lots of different ba- great bass players as well. Um, mm. You know, so it's really cool. You know, every time I would play with a different bass player, it's like there's a, there's certain like um, things, you know, each different one's going to do and little things that you just play around with. And yeah, it's cool. Um, yeah, that, that's a, that's a, phenomenal band to to make music with for sure very cool very cool um now i noticed in your um there was a picture on uh instagram about yeah. your about your drum room and your iso room and mm-hmm. um i need to ask you because mm-hmm. in my iso and in my room i've got a tv mm-hmm. out there and i've got a nintendo switch and i've got fifa 18 but you've got fifa 20 hell yeah Right, so I'm, 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 I'm weighing up buying twenty, but I, I'm I really like eighteen. So why should I move up to FIFA twenty and not not FIFA? And, and yeah, why should I move up from FIFA eighteen to FIFA twenty? I mean, the gameplay is not that different from eighteen. It's you right. know it's evolved a little bit. It's obviously little things change every year, but it's that for me. It's just keeping up with the new teams, the new jerseys. Yeah, right. All the tran- all the transfers, and then there's a new mode. There's like a street mode as well. So oh, you've, cool. you've got so eighteen. There's there's the journey, which was the kind of cool. I think that was the maybe it's the second journey game. So there's like a side game in, within that where you kind of develop a career of a player. Yeah, I, um, I, that, I'm right into that. I'm um, yeah. So that yeah. Um, Christian Eriksen. 
and <laughs> started at Spurs, moved to Manchester City, um, and I've just transferred. To, I just got a big offer to Barcelona, so I'm, I've, That's I've it. headed over there now. So yeah, <laughs> well, it, the, the new great. one has a has a new game mode, which is like a, a what do you call it a street mode. So it's like street football. That's, so that's cool. Cool. That's cool. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things. I always have to get the new game because I, you know, I'm so. You know, that's there. There are a few loves in my life. Music is a big love. Yep. And and football is an equally big love in my life. Right. It, it, you know, it's on a, it's on a pedestal with music in terms of passion. You know. That's cool. Um. And and so I have to have the the latest game and the right. latest teams and stuff because I'm following every league in the world and I'm watching games constantly. You know, fo- I, I don't just watch one league. I watch like pretty much all of them. So yeah, yeah, I got you. Um, Gotcha. And, and you know, so that's um, that's also one of the things that's been really weird to adapt to in isolation is that there's no, no football on, yeah. Um, because normally I would be, um, yeah, watching you know a lot like probably 10, 10 to twenty games a week. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's full on. Yeah. See, so, I'm, a, I'm um, a big a big rugby union um, yeah. f- fan, and you know the Super Rugby stopped, but that's uh, in New Zealand. Um, they, they, they've just they've got, announced rugby, rugby's just, coming back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we've New Zealand's just announced a um, uh, interclub tournament, which starts in June. Yeah, just the New yeah, Zealand cool. teams playing. Yeah, and hopefully we're aiming for some test matches later in the year. Mm, um, but mm. the thing with you know going back to the FIFA thing, EA Sports stopped making rugby union games in about two thousand and eight. Yeah, um, and you know. It, I would buy all those rugby games, you know, yeah, up, yeah. Uh, up until they stopped making them. And I would play them every morning. I'd get up in the morning, yeah, I'd have yeah. my coffee and I'd play a game of rugby and then I'd go to yeah. work. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And I'd missed that for years and years. And then during, during ISO, um, the Nintendo store had a slash on prices of all the games. And yeah. FIFA 18 was like 20 bucks. Yeah. I and mean, that's like, the thing, I, you know, like there's yeah. not been a rugby game as good no. since Lomu. Oh yeah, that, oh, that's that's a classic. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> that, PlayStation you know, that, One. That, that was the <laughs> that was pinnacle awesome. for rugby games, and um, but it's funny because I've spent so many years on tour buses around the world, and yeah, of you know, I always have FIFA with me on tour. That's the game that I have. That's cool. You know, that's cool. That and Football Manager. There's a managing simulation game that's on yep. on a computer. That's you know, I'm yeah, because you've always got so much time on on tour buses where you just have to you know. Do something, and you know I'm not the kind of guy that sleeps very well often, and um, right, and um, you know so I'm always yeah playing those games to kind of yeah deal with the adrenaline post show, you know, because quite often you you finish a show, you get on the tour bus, you're driving overnight to the next place, yeah, and repeating, you know, so that's one of my things is I just yeah f- football games, <laughs> awesome, that's really cool. Um, do you have a a uh, pre-show um, warm-up or practice regime that you you follow mm-hmm. every gig, or it's just kind of gig to gig. Yeah, pretty much. I, like I um I wouldn't I, I don't necessarily do like a like a rudiment warm-up or like a it's not so much the the stick work. Yep, I'm not really kind of doing that before show. Um, what I'm doing is I'm preparing my my body and my mind for what's about to happen, and what what I'm you know because I've found uh, you know obviously my years spent um, studying with Dave Desenzo he had problems as a young fella where he 
he burnt his body out and he had to reteach himself and revamp his technique to, you know, you know, change how he was playing so he didn't have the problems with tendonitis and stuff that he had mm. previously. Um, I've had uh, some horrendous injuries in my life, not just music but like just, yeah, accidents and whatnot and, you know, broken bones and stuff. And so I, I you know, I prepare my body as much as I can. I treat it like a sport. Um, you know, because obviously dad's gig is a high intensity gig and it's, um, you know, one of the main things that people tell me after that show is how relentless I am on the drums. And that's because I, you know, I, I condition myself for that, you know, so I'm training whenever I can, keeping my body fit. Um, so it usually starts about an hour before the show. Mm-hmm. I'll um I'll start I'll usually do about 20 minutes of stretching so I'm stretching doing a I've got pretty much a, a routine that I'd go through yep um of all my stretches which culminates with uh leg stretches so calves especially mm-hmm. and 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 this was basically basically um you know trial and error like I would I would figure out what muscles I felt were cramping more than others and when they were cramping in the show and um the ones that were generally giving me trouble were my calves about mm. three quarters of the way through the show. Mm. Um, let's say we're talking a two, two and a half hour show, about three quarters of the way through. Sometimes I'd get a calf cramp and um, right forearm from the hi-hat. Yep. Um, they were the main two and they had a bit of upper back problems as well from, you know, the just the, you know, and shoulder problems. Um, I've had a number of shoulder issues from, you know, overuse. Mm. Uh, you know, because it's not unusual for me to play, you know, um, 150 to 200 plus shows a year. Yep. Um, and that in, at that intensity, you know, you are getting a lot of vibration and uh, shock to your joints. Um, you know, so one of the other things I, I'm a, a strong advocate for is um, supplements. So I take magnesium before and during the show, much like a, a sportsman would. Yep. Uh, and then I'm taking protein after the show to um, help the muscles recover because, um, you know, like I've had um, in my, you know, parallel lives, you know, where I've always wanted to play sport as well. Like I've known a lot of sportsmen yep. um, and a lot of the sportsmen I know have wanted to be musicians and so they come to shows and stuff and when they watch me play, they're like, oh, it's like you're playing a match, you know, you're, you're playing a game of sport. And it's the same, you know, like you you go through your whole career as a, as a sportsman with little niggles little injuries that are things that are bothering your body um, and they just play through them, get injections, get, you know, treatments before sh- uh, before games and stuff. Much like I prepare my body, I have little aches and stuff that I have yep. constantly and, um, you know, I just uh, y- you find ways to get through it and that's, uh, for me, the magnesium is really helpful. So if there's any drummers out there that, um, that find they're getting – you know, problems with endurance and um, cramping. And cramping the, especially, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and they feel like, you know, they're getting to that stage of the gig where you get tired and you can't lift that intensity back up and you you generally – I go to so many gigs and I hear when a drummer gets tired because you hear them kind of drop off the intensity but it doesn't kind of get back up and then you're like, well, that's kind of a that, – that usually happens at a – at quite an important part of the set where you like you really want it to lift. And, you know, so the way that I prepare my body for the show, you know, with the stretching, the supplements and stuff allows me to get to that point. And it's like when you're in a workout and you get to that set of like 
let's say you're doing 20 bench presses, you get to 15, your body starts to hurt like shit and you go, you, you just have to push through it. And that's when, you know, I get that second wind and you, you're able to, mm. you know, it, not just get back to the level you're at, but elevate it again. And that's, you know, another thing that comes into play with that adrenaline that I was talking about. It's like yep. you, you have to really control a lot of elements in a show. Um, uh, you know, so that's, you know, my, my preparation is incredibly important to that. Um, yeah, and, you know, for the most part, I'm not drinking before or, or during the show. Sometimes, mm-hmm. but for the yep. most part, no. Um, and to be honest, I don't really drink that often after. It's just occasionally. Um, but, sure. um, but yeah, it's, it's really about, you know, getting into the right state of mind for the show you're playing. And, um, you know, when I was with the 10 Tenors, that was a much less intense physically for me like physically it wasn't as as intense a show yeah um uh, but, but mentally, mentally yeah. but mentally i was exhausted after those shows because you had to be so concentrated and um it doesn't matter how hard you hit or or, or what it is a, playing a concert is intense no matter what level of show you're playing at and you need to prepare yourself for that because um you know if not you're not going to be effective and and the the result of that is either you're not going to get booked again or um, or they might, you know, just y- you'll only ever get a certain caliber of show that yeah, you're gotcha. booked for. Yeah, gotcha. You know, so I'm, I'm fortunate that, you know, like I've over the years developed something that works for me and keeps my body in shape and keeps my mind in shape and, you know, it keeps me effective as a musician. Um, the other big thing is, um, is getting your ears ready. Um, you know, you kind of... Yep you have to kind of go through kind of a mantra where you're kind of um, switching on all the different senses, you know, like that are important to the show. Um, and one of the biggest skills that I've developed over the years is the ability to, you know, whether I'm whether I'm playing with wedges or I'm playing with in-ears, mm. um, you know, I've developed the ability to be able to single out sounds from each different instrument at different points in the night to make sure that, you know, I'm conversing with them appropriately uh, musically. Um, so it, it's important to be able to, you know, like if you're, um, you know, you're, he- you're hearing certain parts that jump out, you have to then, you know, train your ear to be able to just listen to that instrument for for that period of time and you have to be able to, you know, focus on what's going on around you because uh, there's no point just playing your part and not listening to what's going on around you. The, the, um, the most important part of being in a band is being in a band. You have to, you know, you're, you're, you're only as good as the collaboration. Um, you know, so it, it truly is a collaborative effort and you have to prepare yourself to be open to that because if you go out there and like, you know, it, it, every band prepares themselves differently and every musician does as well. Some people like to kind of isolate themselves before they go on, just to kind yep. of get focused, and yep. I'm, I'm I'm a little bit like that at times, but you know you have to um, w- when it comes down to it, you have to you know kind of have a moment together and say, look, let's 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 get it, like, and you have to really kind of you know acknowledge that this is going to be a, a a collaborative effort, yeah. So that's uh you know it, it all comes down to how you prepare and how you. Yeah, it's kind of a it's a mentality you get into, you know, and it's something that it's just come second nature to me now. And if I don't go through those steps, I feel uncomfortable when I'm going on stage. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, 
Um, so it's one of those things like I, I've, I've, you know, part of being in isolation, I've started teaching people and, you know, that that's part of the wisdom that I'm able to share now that, you know, I've been given over the years by the people I respect. Yeah. And still so young too. What You're only 34, eh? Yeah. You're, th- you're yeah. 34? Man. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've got a lifetime of... <laughs> You know, musical experience already, and yeah, so young. So it's it's um. Oh man, I'm, yeah, I'm fortunate. You know, I love what I do, and I've you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you got to love it. That's it. Um, I cut you off earlier. We're we're about to talk about your solo stuff, your your EP. So let's talk a little bit about that. And you know, do you have um, plans in the future for solo music? Yeah. So there's two two chapters to this story. I guess the first chapter cool. starts around. Um, Say 2014, and and it's actually I, I forgot I did a tour with Reese Maston, <laughs> um, who's a great he's a Kraken singer. Um, yep. So I did a tour with him, and um, I think it was 2014. And while I was on that tour, um, I had a chance encounter on an airplane, or and and at the baggage carousel, um, with a with a guy and a a young girl that he he managed uh, or manages. And um, anyway, it was one of those weird things like they walked past me on the airplane and there were kind of two people that looked familiar but you kind of don't know where from. Um, And he kind of looked at me like he knew me and kind of smiled and kind of nodded and I was like, oh, shit, I don't know who this is. (laughs) I probably met him somewhere and, yeah, anyway, so I kind of like, yeah, kind of forgot about it by the end of the flight, to be honest. And then I'm, I'm waiting for my bags at the carousel and I see him and this girl walking up towards me and I'm going, oh, fuck, they do know me. Like, um, <laughs> I, I'm, I've, I, and I was just drawing a blank. And luckily the first thing he said was, oh, don't worry, you don't know me. Oh, um, <laughs> awesome. But I, but I know you. And, um, and then, you know, they, he introduced me, himself to me, um, uh, Steve James, his name is, and... Um, and a girl, the girl's Alice Fion, and um, they said, "Oh, they uh, she was doing some supports for Tina Arena at the time." And I was out with Reese, and I just kind of like we I invited them to the show, and they came along, and um, and then we we're just chatting, and the, she, she, he, he was just like, "Oh, Alice is writing some new songs for her record, and you know, if you're down to collaborate at some point, we'd love to write some songs." So I was doing a lot of writing at the time. Um, and I kind of said, um, yeah, cool. I said, I've got the next week and the next weekend off. If you, if you guys want to, you know, after these shows, if you want to, I don't know where you're based, but if you want to come to Sydney, I've got access to studio and, um, and whatnot, and we can, you know, see what happens. And they said, oh yeah, probably, you know, we'll see, see what happens. And, you know, when that kind of conversation happens, you know, 90% of the time you never hear from them again. And, um, and you kind of just move on with, with your life and, Anyway, I get a call the next day and it was Steve and he said, oh, we just landed in Sydney. We decided to come down for the weekend. So um, are you free this afternoon? I was like, yeah, let's do it. Um, so we got together at Dad's studio um, and sat around the piano and it was just one of those things. It just like the the personalities clicked, the music clicked. Uh, I mean, I'm obviously more known as a rock and roll drummer in Australia, but, you know, um, when it comes to my own writing in my own voice I'm kind of a bit more in the kind of indie folk kind of realm mm-hmm. um, anyway so we're writing and I'm uh, one of the things I love to do is is write harmonies and 
different parts. And so we wrote within a couple of hours, we'd written a couple of beautiful songs and um, they left that day and said, oh, well, um, I know we said that you were going to write for for Alice, but what if, um, but it sounds so good with you both singing. Why don't you consider a, a new project? And I was like, wait a minute, no one's ever really kind of asked me to sing in that way, you know. It's like it's one of those things that I, I come from a family that's very intimidating to be a singer in, um, you know, because all my sisters <laughs> yeah. sing incredibly and my dad's, you know, uncles and, you know, every, everyone sings. Yeah. And and I've, I've, you know, not got a, I haven't got dad's voice. I haven't got that range and that strength, but I've got a good voice. Um, and it was one of those things I just never, I've always been interested in singing, but never, um, you know, I'll, no one had ever asked me to really. So <laughs> they were the first two to ask me to sing. And so um, the next week or two, we, we ended up recording a, an EP with, with my Uncle Diesel and he, he produced it for us and we put it out under the name Chance Carousel and, um, you know, just and actually... Um, Mark Lazotte came up with that name, you know, based off how it all came about. It was just a chance meeting at a carousel and we thought it kind of rolled off the tongue nicely as a name and we put a a five-track EP out there, self-titled under Chance Carousel and it's, you know, it's beautiful music. It's um, it's got her on acoustic and electrics and myself on piano and percussion, some drums, but it's really, uh, for me, it's, it was, it was, I was able to step away from the drums and, you know, focus more on the voice and the piano and it's a lot more acoustic than other records I've recorded and obviously it's the the only record where I'm singing that I've put out myself, you know, so uh, very proud of how that was, you know, it's it's out there and, um, you know, it, it was a... It was a very cool thing to 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 be a part of, and you know who knows what will happen in the future. Um, if there's more music to be made, like there's definitely some songs that we didn't record that I feel like should be out there. So uh, yeah, it's one of those things. Never say never. Um, and then um, more recently, so I was on tour with Lockie um, in Europe, and it's one of those things. Every year we tend to have like a week to two week break in in the middle of the tour where there's just no shows or like there's, you know, cause it's just hard to fill up, you know, when you're over there for a couple of months, you're going to have little pockets where you've got free time. Yep. Um, and what I usually like to do is, um, you know, cause it's, it's always in midsummer, it's always expensive to come home, but usually you can get a cheap flight somewhere near right. you or, or whatever. So, you know, last year when I was on tour with Lockie, I had a week and a half off and I, got like a, a real super cheap flight and went to Turkey and went to Istanbul and just kind of had a cultural experience there, um, you know, met up with some friends and just, yeah, got got, got some kind of, yeah, some cultural experience under my belt, something to add to the, you know, influences on my, on my music. Um, the year before that, um, I happened to, ha- I was talking to one of my best friends, uh, Michelle Nasrallah, who's a, um, he was, we, we were neighbours at Berkeley and he, he was a student with me. We travelled to Ghana together. We've had, you know, an incredible amount of life experience together and, you know, he's one, he was one of my groomsmen at my wedding and a dear friend and an incredible musician. He's Brazilian, lives in Sao Paulo in Brazil and um, I, I happened to be talking to him on this tour. We, we were just chatting about, you know, why don't we make some music together at some point and, um so then I had that little kind of break in the middle of the tour and I, 
looked and there was actually a, a, a really cheap flight to Sao Paulo. So I, I called him up and said, are you in Sao Paulo? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I just got back there. And um, so I flew down to Sao Paulo in Brazil and stayed with him for 10 days and, and, and also met up with another great friend and guitarist, Alvaro Capaz in, in Brazil. And, and yeah, we just, we, we, we started kind of writing some music. We recorded something there and then he ended up coming out to Australia after that trip, after the tour had finished. And he spent some time with me and we, we wrote and recorded a, a bunch of songs. And, um, those songs have now evolved into a band, you know, where we're going to, we're going to put out a, a record, you know, very soon. It's actually, um, it's in the final stages of mixing and mastering at the moment. And, um, you know, it's one of those, you know, awesome collaborations, you know, we, we collaborated with, um, with a, another Berkeley friend who's from Mongolia. She's a Mongolian throat singer, Uyanga Bolbatar, and um, she goes by Uyanga Bold. And, um, you know, she did all the vocals on the new Milan movie. And, um, you know, she's one of those girls that her voice is on like every like epic video game, fantasy video game, wow. doing that throat singing thing. She's awesome. And, uh, you know, we were, in, we were in, I was with Michelle in LA last year and we, um, had this track that has this kind of real long kind of odyssey sort of, it's like a big kind of jam out and it just felt right. And we're like, well, it needs another element. And I, and I just kind of called Uyanga and said, look, I feel like this song needs some Mongolian throat singing on it. <laughs> as you do. And, as you do, um, yeah. As you do. So I, and I called her and she was in, I think she was in Malibu and we were out in like Sun Valley or something. And it, she was like, yeah, I've got the day, I've actually got the day off and like, yeah, like because uh, like I'd seen Uyanga like years before and and gone and hung out at her joint and 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 we kind of spoke about making music together, but we never had the time. So I was like, now's the time. And so she got in a car and and came out with her husband and took like an hour and three quarters in LA traffic to get to us. And she ended up doing a couple of passes, singing this just epic vocal track on this on this song. So. Little things like that just kind of fell together really nicely. And, um, you know, so we've got a really kind of cool thing that's going to come out soon, um, you know, so so stay tuned for that. It's looking like it's going to be called Genghis Nash. Wow, which is that's a, which is, a cool name. Yeah. so That's cool, a, man. Looking forward to that. Um, very interested about the Mongolian throat singing. I'm going to Google that tonight. Yeah. So I get, get an I'll, idea and I'll send you is, I'll send you her her some links to her singing cuz she's great. Ab- absolutely incredible and it's, and it's the same thing it's like it's like Matt Gasker like those kind of cats like you know we we all knew each other when we were you know late teens you know like from like in our like developmental years and yep. you know it, it's so nice that all these people have gone have gone on to great success which is really cool you know it's it's actually uh this week it's uh Tenth, the tenth anniversary of my graduation from Berkeley. So, oh wow, that's a milestone, you know. Um, and and I've, I've actually just spent the last couple of days, you know, reaching out to other Berkeley cats, just saying, "Look, it's been already ten years. Like, yeah, it's crazy." And a lot of us have started families now, and um, and a lot have found some really great success. So it's it's really cool, really cool. That's very cool. Mm. Um, now I have a. Spotify playlist or well, the Gig Life podcast has a Spotify playlist. Yeah. Um, and up to this point, up till today, actually, um, it's filled with songs 
and will remain to, to keep getting filled with songs um, that my guests have either played on or um, written or such and yep, such. So yep. we're still going to add to that. Um, yeah, yeah. We're going to put some songs that you've played on. But yeah, cool. We're, we're changing it up a little bit now and we're going to add to this list what I asked you today, sent you a message today. I said, can you tell me a song, just one song, um, that we can put on the playlist and I'm going to play a little bit of it and it's called – well, actually, you can you can introduce the song and we'll, we'll just play, play it a little bit and then I'll yep. bring the volume down and you can talk to me about the song and how it's inspired you and um, – Okay, so over to you, man. What's the song? Yeah, so it's um, it's by one of my favorite bands in the world, uh, The Meters, uh, New Orleans funk band, and it's a song called It Ain't No Use off the album Rejuvenation. So why this song, man? What, what's? Um, I have a long history with not just the Meters, but this this album, Rejuvenation. Um, my dad introduced me to them at a young age, and uh, they quickly became one of my favourite bands of all time. Uh, like I said at the start of the podcast, um, Zigaboo, uh, Joseph Zigaboo, modelist, is um, one of one of the greatest drummers of all time, in my opinion, and one of the greatest groovers um, there's ever been. Um, yeah, and, and this album, it's one of those albums that when I, you know, kind of, I kind of go through periods where I practice and I don't. Um, like when I, quite often when I come off a tour and I've been playing show after show, I don't feel like practicing. I feel like just kind of stepping away from the drums and kind of enjoying my family and stuff. But when I do get into practice mode and in in the past where I've been in kind of, you know, at Berkeley, for example, where I practiced every day, I would start and end my practice by playing through the, that whole album, start to finish. Right. So right. I'd, spend, I'd spend like an hour playing through it, do about an hour or two hours of various things, and then I'd play it again at the end. So um, it ain't no use. As, um, it, it's, you know, kind of towards the back half of the it's it's towards the end of the album and it's a it's kind of this drawn out jam and i like the spontaneity of it and the kind of the kind of how it just kind of it gets into a trance and it just kind of draws you in and it just has this absolute incredible groove to it obviously george porter's bass playing is just incredible him and him and Zigaboo holding that pocket down, and uh, it's one of those things that just the track just goes on and on, and there's like great backing vocals. I think the Pointer Sisters are the backing vocalists on it, and like yeah. so, it's just like it, it's just a, a fucking cool track to be honest. And yeah, it's I, a 11, I, 11 and a half minutes long. Eh? It's a it's, it's a, a lot. It, it, it jams on, and, and everyone takes a solo. So there's a there's a, it's one of the rare uh, Zigaboo drum solos on on a meters record which is really cool because he just plays groove solos and, and you know like I've always been uncomfortable with taking solos I've never liked drum solos really um, in, in the traditional sense and like 
So whenever I've been asked to take a solo, I generally play grooves, and, and um, you know I'm definitely more from the from the Zigaboo or the, like the Steve Gadd school of solos, where you kind of you find, I'm kind of trying to develop themes and keep it in in time. Like I don't really just do like a loose free gotcha solo where you just kind of go off on a tangent. Like I like to have a theme and kind of theme of variations really kind of just little little things around a groove so the thing that Zigaboo does well in this song at the end is he just plays some really killer variations of the groove that he's playing throughout um, and then it has this awesome moment at the end of his solo where George Porter comes back in on the bass and it's just it's one of those moments in the song that just grabs you by the nut and you go ooh <laughs> <laughs> that's cool so check that out. The link to the playlist is in the show notes. Um, now, to round it out, to round it out, Jack, um, tell us some of your goals, man. Like, um, yeah, places you want to play, people you want to play with, or mm-hmm. just yeah, if you can share some of your goals and um, yeah, that, that'd be really cool. Yeah. So I mean, it the the goals are, are things that change all the time. I mean. Um, Obviously, I've had an incredibly fortunate life and um, I, I've met and performed with some wonderful people um, and I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of my idols. Um, you know, so I, you know, I've met Zigaboo, I've met Ian Pace, James Gadson, who played on a lot of Dad's records, I've met him and, uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen I've met and, and he was in, incredibly friendly and nice to me and, um there's so many so many people that I've like thought oh, I want to work with these people and then I realize I've been able to you know either make music with them or hang out with them and gain some life experience from them uh in terms of goals for the future I definitely want to make more of my own music um there, you know there are certain artists that I would love to work with for sure um you know there's a there's a singer from Mali Umu Sangare who um, I would love to work with in the future. Um, you know, a bit out of left field, you know. Um, yeah, it's just my, my goals are just to make good music. Um, you know, I've, I've I've been fortunate to, you know, play in some pretty cool places. I would like to play more in South America. Um, I'd like to explore different parts of the world. You know, I think I'm up to something like 65 countries that I've toured wow. in. Um, you know, so it, it's it's one of those things when I when I get a when I get a tour schedule and there's a place that I haven't been, I get really excited. You know, so for me, it's all about discovering more, learning more. I, I want to, you know, uh, you, you, you're never finished learning. Um, you know, so I, I'm excited to just yeah go to new places, discover new music, and um, you know, just increase. My like, like I said, what I got from Berkeley was a vocabulary in many different languages, and my main goal is to you know become fluent in as many language musical languages as possible. Um, and you know, to do that, you have to travel and you have to immerse yourself in culture. Um, so that's my main goal, and and then you know, just yeah, make good music. Like that's that's all I want to do is just continue to make music and inspire people um there's now i'm now at the point in my career where you know there's a younger generation coming through and um you know i've got some young students so that's very inspiring to me now um passing on some wisdom you know because i've 
I've had a lot of time on the road and and I've had a lot of experience. You know, uh, we we didn't even talk about Rose Tattoo as well. So, oh yeah. yes. <laughs> Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Rose Tattoo and then we'll drop it back in. Um, yeah, so Rose Tattoo came about um, in 2018, I think it was. So it's, it's re- one of the more recent gigs that I've kind of taken on. Um, yeah, it was one of the uh, – it, it's funny because Angry's known me since I was a baby, you know. Like I, I, I've known, I, I remember seeing Angry a lot growing up as a kid, you know. He's just one of those – one of the extended musical family that was, you know, part of our family's life. And, um, you know, so, and when I was also a young drummer coming up, one of the guys that really helped me with my first, you know, endorsement and helped me with my first tour in terms of like getting me, you know, just playing with good energy was Paul Paul DeMarco. DeMarco, yeah, Yeah, so, you know, so I have a lot to thank Paul for, for helping me, when I was, you know, 16, 17 years old. Um, and, you know, so when, when obviously all that stuff went down with him go, going to jail and stuff, it was very sad to hear. And yep. um, I can remember, I, I, you know, because we, we'd done tours with Dad with Rose Tattoo, like double bills, and I can remember, you know, um, doing the benefit for Mick Cox just before he sadly passed away. And, um, and I can remember at that point I had one tattoo, I think it was, and I can remember Angry coming up to me, smashed backstage at the M Mall, and he grabbed my arm and kind of, oh, he saw he saw a tattoo. He goes, oh, that you're on the right track there, young fella. And um, <laughs> so then a couple of years later, I I got like a quite a significantly big tattoo on one of my arms, and we saw each other again somewhere, and he grabbed me and kind of, oh, he he, he like ran his arm down my tattoo and went. We'll we'll talk you and I. <laughs> so he kind of always had these give the, gave these little hints that maybe we'll talk at some point. And yeah. um, and in actual fact, you know, he'd seen me play with Dad a lot. But what got me that gig was he saw me play with Lockie. Right. So Lockie and I, we we did a we did one of the Rock the Boat cruises. Yep. And um and Angry was on that not as Rose Tattoo but just as Angry Anderson. Um and he was at one of our gigs and he had an incredibly good time and um, he pulled me aside after the gig and just said how inspiring it was and yeah and 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 we had a we had a good good moment there and then um, lo and behold I get a I get a call from him when I get back to Australia and he asked me to join Rose Tattoo so um, that was you know an honor for me because obviously I grew up knowing the music very well um, you know it's part of it's part of my DNA it's part of my you know my history you know like the we're talking about you know people who spent a lot of time with my dad when in his formative years as well um you know so for me it was an honor to to get the call and um you know replacing a drummer like John Watson who is another inspiring guy to me mm-hmm. um you know so that was a big deal for me. It was kind of like a validation of everything I've worked hard for in my life. Um, you know, that you, you get the calls from the bands you love if you if you work hard enough. Um, and so, yeah, I just basically wanted to, you know, honour the music, um, honour the fans, and you know, just do a good job. I wanted to, I wanted to give it a new energy as well. That's one of the things that people hire me for is they they know the energy that I bring to a gig, especially a rock gig, and um, yeah, it, it, 
we made some great music together and uh, we, re- we re-recorded the first album, um, not, to, not to just kind of redo it, but just to honour it um, as the, mm-hmm. for the 40th anniversary of that record. Um, so that's called Outlaws. That, that actually finally came out a few months ago. And so that's the most recent release I think that I'm on uh, is Outlaws mm-hmm. by Rose Tattoo. And, you know, it was incredibly, you know, it, it was an honour to be a part of that. Like you, you, we're talking about, you know, you grow up with, you know, people you idolise and then suddenly you're playing in a band with the original bass player from ACDC and, you know, Mark Evans and and Bob's, Bob Spencer who's a, you know, incredible guitarist and 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 yeah Di, Di Pritchard um you know so it, it was it, it was an incredible lineup for that band you know like unfortunately a lot of the you know historic members have passed passed on now and um you know angry's flying the flag now but you know i th- i feel like we've honored it in a good way um you know so i've spent a lot of time the last few years on the road with them and um you know we've gone through some some great moments and also some heartbreaking moments um yeah yeah so it, it's been a it's been a journey man um those guys are they're you know they're part of my musical family now you know so um yeah i've got a lot of time for all those guys so yeah i'm very appreciative of that opportunity yeah great stuff jackie barnes really inspiring listen to your talk man and and so glad that we could uh hook us up and you could spend some time with me tonight and chat about your life. Um, yeah. It's been really cool, man. Um, yeah, just, re- yeah, very thankful. Too easy, mate. Well, thanks for having me and, um, yeah, it's good to be here. Sweet as. All the best, man. And, um, yeah, hopefully you're out playing some gigs soon and, and uh, when you're in Sydney, we'll, we'll catch up. It'll be really cool. Sounds good, brother. Thanks for having me. Sweet as. All right, mate. All right, Jackie. Cheers, my man. All right, bye.
Make a break. 